Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Rocky and I are here to talk about the DC books for the week of January 11th, 2022. Solid week from DC this week, uh, second week of the new year. Uh, I would say there's a, there's a couple of books that I maybe didn't enjoy as much as I, I would have liked. Um, some continuing series, one new one. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's some good books. What I will say is I think every single book that's out this week either stars Batman or is Batman related. Uh, you know, the, the closest one to not be would be Titans United. But, you know, that's Nightwing's the leader of the Titans. So, I mean, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, but that, that's at least Batman-centric. All the rest, man, they really, really, Batman is a main character. Or I mean, obviously, Pennyworth is as, pretty much as Batman as gets Batgirls again. Joker. So, yeah, uh, a lot of Batman. Good week if you're a Batman lover, I guess. What'd you think, Rocky? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a good week if you're a Batman, I guess. Uh, you know, it's funny because I was looking at, you know, just because of a recent debate I was involved with in this uh, yesterday, I I reviewed the comic book sales just going back the last six months. And, you know, it's it's, a, it's actually quite disturbing for, for DC. While comic book sales are up and there's reason to be quite happy with digital sales on the increase, comic books aren't dying, contrary to what some will say. There's no question that uh, Marvel has uh, maintained a fairly good handle on the top uh, 100. Uh, and But DC is, uh, you know, they've... they've DC sales are hurting, uh, at least according to the estimates of Comicron, which is, you know, the data is, is it's more speculative than ever before. But John Jackson Miller, John Jackson Miller of Comicron has, you know, he's done his due diligence and he's tried his best to try to get as much information as possible. And, and everything from Wonder Woman to Action Comics, Flash, Suicide Squad, that those core comics, those uh, Flash, the ones that we love so much, are selling in the 30000 per month range. And even Batman, it's only Joker and Batman that are above the 75000 mark uh, on a month-in, month-in basis uh, for the most part. Uh, I mean... You know, I'm oversimplifying, but there are, you know, as much as you and I, we love DC. I mean, it, it does sort of make me wonder. I mean, there's a lot of strength on the independent line, independent markets. I just, I really hope that, uh, I can only hope that some, you know, more readers give maybe DC a chance because I, it's especially in 2022 here, because I do think that there's going to be some interesting events for DC coming up. And I just hope readers uh, maybe give DC more of a chance than what the sales, the speculated sales numbers would indicate otherwise. Yeah, and I don't even think it's, you know, I, yes, Marvel's doing better than DC. Marvel typically does better than DC ever since like 1972 or whenever it was that they that, yeah. that uh, Marvel first passed them. Right. And with a few exceptions, that's been been the case. Certainly if you, you know, there's been a month here, a month there, obviously, you know, Death of Superman, things like that. Uh, but if you look on a year-by-year -year basis, yeah, Marvel's been, been the winner. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but I sort of feel like, and th this just isn't DC specific, this goes for both of the big two. There's a little bit of a, a feeling of a rudderless ship from both, uh, from both big publishers right now, I feel like. Um, and I'm not saying that DC was wrong to fire Dan Didio. I don't know enough about the, the inner workings and, and Dan and I haven't even discussed that. Um, and, and one thing that, Dan did mention last time I talked to him, which has been quite a while now, was that he, even he felt it was probably time for him to go and then to get some new blood at, at the top. But you can't argue with the fact that 
Dan Didio was a very good hype man for DC Comics. And when C.B. Sobolski first got promoted to, uh, to pub, or editor, editor-in-chief at Marvel, he, he was the same. But I don't know if it's part of the, the fallout from the pandemic or what, but C.B.'s been pretty silent, <laughs> I feel like, maybe for the last year and haven't heard anything from D.C., uh, since Dan left, you know, uh, Marie Jabbins, she might be doing a great job as editor in chief, you know, or publisher or, or whatever her title is, you know, basically the role that Dan Didio had. Um, and another part of this is the fact that we haven't had a, a lot of conventions, even the ones we had are, are not the same, you know, it's, it's, again, it's the pandemic effect, but man, we really need somebody ever since Stan Lee died. That was the beginning in yeah. my mind of the end of, of kind of the hype man. And even before, when his health started failing, he wasn't th that same kind of presence of promoting comics. And now with Didio out at DC, it's like, man, who's there drumming up the excitement yep. for these books at the big two? I feel like in the last year, for sure, maybe a little longer, maybe a year and a half, the excitement for comics is more on the independent side. And you and I have both seen yeah. it. And, and rightfully so. I mean, there's tons of great independent comics out there. I mean, Aftershock, probably my favorite company right now in terms of just like – the difference between quality and their best title and their their you know title I enjoy the least is very very small. It, yeah. It's very consistent. Everything is above average. Uh, you can't yeah. say the same about DC or Marvel. Yeah. They have some books that are very, in my mind, very much below average. Yeah. So well, it's yeah, frustrating. I mean, they need a comics. voice. They like you say they need a personality to promote the comics because it's, it's literally it's there's nothing there's nothing and it's it's shameful. It really is. It's it's shameful. It's just it's it's inexcusable. To, I mean, yeah. even if you don't, even if, even if you, even if there, if there was, if you objectively could say that there, the line was terrible, it doesn't matter. They're your comics. Support them. Promote yeah. them. Yeah. I mean, and exactly. verbally support them. Support your creators. I mean, but to just, but to be silent about it all the time, and then we we're only left to solicits, which often spoil the stories and are sometimes misleading. It's just very, very frustrating, and it, I think it puts an unfair burden on the individual creators of the comics to have to go out and do individual interviews and try to. They should every creator. I mean, they work hard enough as it is. They shouldn't necessarily be the only ones that 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 market their own stories. But anyways. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. I think that's a hundred percent true, and you know, I'm, I'm not saying comics are dying. I'm not saying that at all. But yeah, there needs to be like, who's the, who's got the voice? And I've, and again, this isn't a new problem. But who's got the voice? Comics are still at the center of pop culture in terms of like movies and TV shows. I just saw an article the other day. The latest Spider-Man movie is up to one point five billion dollars. I think isn't that worldwide. crazy? That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's fantastic. But who's out there going, hey, if you like this movie, read this comic or read that comic or whatever. And I get it. Like, it's it's an uphill battle. People don't like to read. People want, you know, entertainment that's spoon-fed to them. Yeah. But it's not going to hurt the numbers by having somebody out there who's who's pitching these books saying, give it a try. You know, why not? Why not give it a try? So. Anyway, let's go ahead and dive into the uh, the DC books for this week, starting off with uh, with Future State Gotham, issue number nine. It's written by Dennis Culver. Art is by Giannis Milano-Giannis. Letters by Troy Petrie. And there is a backup. It's from, like a lot of these backups have been, it's from Batman Black and White. The story is by Gabriel Hardman and Karina Bechko. Gabriel Hardman is the artist. Troy Petrie does letters. Uh, I don't really... I'm, the only thing I'm going to say about the backup, if Rocky wants to comment on it, he can. 
once again, we have uh, a, a story from Batman Black and White, the latest iteration of Batman Black and White, that is being reprinted. And it ha it wasn't even a year ago that it came out in Batman Black and White. You want to talk about shameful. Why are you charging extra? Because you, there's a backup story in this book that you're reprinting and it's not even a year old. Yeah. And there's no colors in this comic. Once again, I don't understand it. Um, you know, I guess the argument could be made that Milo no Giannis's work looks better in black and white because we did see it colored in the future state uh, Batman title and it didn't look as good as it looks here. Um, but maybe this isn't the right project for him or, or charge less charge two ninety nine because you're not paying for a color artist. Uh, I just think it's wrong to be reprinting a, a story that's not even a year old uh, and then charging more because this is one of those titles that has a backup feature in it. It's, it's not okay. And as far as the main feature, I actually liked uh, Future State Gotham number eight, maybe better than I had any issue of the, the series to this point because we got this next Joker. And despite my dislike of the Joker, um, I thought he was an interesting character. Uh, here, it's like we've forgotten all about him. Um, he showed up at the end of last issue and then we get a little bit of a time jump where we don't even get to see the fight, <laughs> you know, uh, just this one starts off with, uh, Jason Todd, Red Hood getting a call. We know he's working with the magistrate, uh, as magistrate red or whatever he is. Uh, and he's investigating and grifter's mask is there. And we're supposed to believe that grifter was killed by the next Joker. We get Hunter panic who apparently is a descendant of, of, uh, of mother panic. We see the current iteration of Punchline, who's not the original Punchline, because at one point she's being interrogated. They say, oh, you mean the original Punchline? So there's all these derivative characters, magistrates still ruling Gotham. Um, but at the end of the day, and we get the future Hush as well, which he might be the most interesting character. But at the end of the day, what matters to me is the fact that the magistrate got defeated in the pages of the regular Batman comic not so long ago. So I know this future doesn't matter. It's not going to come to pass. Who cares? Can we move on? Like, uh, yeah, I would I would not recommend this title to anybody to spend even a cent on it. It's it's not it's just not good. Like, what's what's the point? It feels like a waste of time as far as technically. Um, I, again, I guess it's OK. Um, I'm not a fan of black and white comics for just for the sake of being black and white. And that's how this feels. It doesn't feel like black and white art in my mind. Um, but again, I could be wrong when we saw Milano Giannis's artwork colored, it wasn't any better in future state. So yeah, I'm just not a fan of his style personally. Um, and I'm not a fan of this, this story or this, uh, you know, potential timeline. And we talked about that when we covered all the, the future state stuff. So we we don't feel or I don't feel that it was the future state was a successful uh, publishing initiative. I think it was a failure. So the sooner it's left in the dust and forgotten in my mind, the better. So why are you, you know, why do you continue to remind us by putting this out on a month in month in basis? Like yeah. I know of no one who was like, Oh yeah, future state. That was, that was so good. I loved it. No one. I know of no one. And I live in the world of comics. So yeah, just didn't like it. In my mind, this just needs to end and go away. So yeah. I, I hate to be, you know, so negative about it, but it just doesn't work for me.
So. I would. Uh, I'm I'm curious as to what the. Uh, I'm still a little bit baffled by what the purpose of this future state Gotham was. There's a part of me that wonders if if they were trying to cater to if they were trying to attract maybe like the manga crowd a little bit because it is black and white and this story isn't bad. I mean, I gotta say, like, and you touched upon it, Jace. You know, there's some there's some interesting story uh, plot developments here. I mean, this is the next Joker. This next Joker is a completely new character that tried to that that originally was obsessed, made contact with Punchline while she was in jail. Apparently, tried to kill Punchline when Punchline sort of rejected this next Joker. We got Talia showing up here, who's looking for her son Damien. Apparently, Damien is missing. Meanwhile, as you said, Grifter has been killed by the next Joker. Peacemaker Red, who is Jason Todd, is teaming up with Mother Panic to try to take to try to find the next Joker. Meanwhile, it's a little unclear exactly what, how Hush plays into this. There's all these moving parts here, and unfortunately, it's I don't know who's reading this to maybe enjoy. I mean, I actually think that if I were to go back and maybe read all this from the beginning, I'd probably better get a better appreciation of it. But uh, and so I'm I'm trying to give it the benefit of the doubt. Unfortunately, because this was such a different type of, this is not your traditional, this doesn't feel or look like your traditional American comic book. This feels like man, manga. It's it's like it's trying to, do, to be a hybrid. It's trying to make itself stand out and it's not catering to either the American comic book market or the manga market. And it's like, it's almost like a style of comic that's trying to find its own audience and it's not quite doing it. But it's... I don't know. It's just, it's not really hitting home. But at the same time, I'm going to acknowledge that I think that this story has some interesting plot points, but it's just going to fall on deaf, on deaf eye, pardon me, on blind eyes and deaf ears, because I don't think enough people are, are reading this and like this particular style. I would, I would still love to have seen this uh, play out in a, maybe an alternate Elseworld story, because I think it has some interesting plot points. But as you said, by now, because we're so kind of sick and tired of Magistrate, we want to move on. The reminder of it here, as if as if this future state is still in existence, this to me feels like a 5G afterthought that should have been cancelled but wasn't because they already had the work done, so they're publishing it. And then, as you indicated already, as as a backup feature, they're, they're republishing material they already published in Batman Black and White. So this whole thing just seems a little bit, you know... Uh, it, it just seems like a very curious uh, editorial choice for a comic. Yeah, I would. Is do you remember? Because I know you just looked at the numbers, and you you, you probably don't because it's, there's so many numbers. Is this their lowest selling title? I would expect. It, <laughs> I, I, I would expect I don't, it to be. I don't know. I I would. Uh, I don't know. I'd be. I'd have to relook at the the, the numbers. I think the latest ones are from October. Uh, but no, I I honestly I, I don't specifically remember, but. Uh, uh, you know, those, those listening on the podcast can go to the Comicron website and, and, and check up on it and, uh, and, and hold, uh, Jason and I accountable. And if the sales number reflect our dismay with the title or if, uh, we should be eating, putting our foot in our mouths. Yeah. Well, <laughs> maybe I'll take a look here, uh, when you talk about the next book, uh, which is Penny, Pennyworth, uh, Pennyworth number six. This is from writer Scott Bryant Wilson. Juan Gideon is the artist. John Rausch on colors, DC Hopkins on letters. Uh, and yeah, I, you know, I've talked before about how much I'm glad this title exists because Alfred is currently dead in the main continuity. So it's great that we get some some Alfred uh, once a month. And it very much takes its cues from the Pennyworth TV show that's uh, that was on Epics, but I think the next season is going to be on HBO Max. So uh, anyway, what did you think of this uh, this issue, Rocky? 
this this is a series that, frankly, I think in in I think this series actually deserves more love than it's gotten. I actually I've been enjoying this. I've uh, I actually <laughs> strangely enough I I think I don't think I finished watching the Pennyworth season on TV, but uh, but I'm reading every issue of this Pennyworth comic. This is. Uh, for some reason, even though I know in DC lore, and obviously we know this is based on the TV show, this so this is not in mainstream DC continuity. It is, alas, in the DC Omniverse where everything matters. This being in sort of the DC, I guess, TV-verse, you could call it. It's, I, I, I actually feel quite satisfied that I'm, we're getting a really good Alfred story here. Uh, w- within, the, within the continuity of the TV universe, which you don't need to know much about. You really don't need to know anything about it. Um, in the, the earlier issues that we reviewed, perhaps some of the criticisms that we talked about is that there was perhaps some over exposition, but I think it was maybe needed to sort of get new readers who don't watch the show into this character and into this, this particular universe of Pennyworth. Uh, this, this whole series has been premised on the idea that, uh, when, when Alfred was younger, he had an adventure with, uh, uh, MI, MI6. He had a partner at that time that ultimately betrayed him in the past. And those scenes are juxtaposed with current scenes with him, with sort of those past, his past uh, spies, opponents, villains coming back to haunt him later on. I, uh, it's interesting here, some of the questions that I still have is uh, the, the woman that betrayed him when he was younger comes back and she she doesn't look like she's aged. And it's kind of funny because, of course, Alfred is... Still, look, Alfred looks, this is not an older Alfred. This is, I mean, it is an older Alfred, but it's not like a gray-haired Alfred. He's still, even, even he's balding, you know, but so he's not as young as he, as he used to be, obviously. You get a sense this is like 30, 40 years later, but his partner, she still looks young. And I'm not really sure how, but she left him to freeze in the Arctic following, uh, following some Russian scandal. I'm oversimplifying here. But in any event, I like this. This actually feels like James Bond. You get a strong sense that when James, when Alfred was younger, he was a James Bond type, and he's likable, and uh, and you, you you get a sense of just how much how much more history there is to Alfred than than you've than just this butler who occasionally you know is always making cucumber sandwiches and stitching up Bruce Wayne. No, he has a rich history in and of itself. That's why I really like this series, and I really think it's underrated. It's uh, I think it's it's this is issue I think it's issue five of seven. So uh, I do hope this sells well in trade. I hope this has a good afterlife that maybe might go beyond the Pennyworth TV series because I don't think the Pennyworth TV series has been renewed for a second season. Although perhaps I'll stand to be corrected on that. I'm I'm hoping. Yeah, I think that... it, I think it has, but on HBO Max. Okay, fair enough. Uh, that's good news. I'm glad to hear that. I enjoyed this series. Uh, it's it's not over yet. The the suspense continues to uh, to build. I enjoyed this, and I I would you know, and I know it's extremely competitive. I know it's another Batman related title, but this actually it doesn't actually feel to me like a Batman title because Batman's name is never mentioned. This really is an Alfred title. It's called Pennyworth for a reason. This isn't Batman. Then there isn't, you know, occasionally there's allusions to, to a, a future Batman. But no, this is a, a universe where Batman's parents are still alive. Alfred is, is young and, uh, and, and the, the scenes that take place in the present still, this is a, an Alfred Pennyworth story. And remember that for those of us who are missing Alfred 
in the mainstream DC universe because he's technically dead. We're only seeing him as a ghost prop up in the pages of Robin under Joshua Williamson. This, this I, I would think, would give a lot of people a good Alfred fix. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, is it a little tropey at times? Yeah, a little, you know, in terms of, hey, this, this woman is still alive, this long lost love of, of Alfred. And, you know, she comes in, he's captured. And of course, she's <laughs> saying, uh, I, I'm, I'm actually on your side. I'm not really working with my father. Help me take him down. You know, and, and Alfred, to his credit, doesn't play along. You know, he knows that she's and, and again, it's very meta. He, he knows not to trust her. She betrayed him. And then as they they start battling and, and she's actually attacking some of the guards, we see the KG beast there, which I enjoyed because it ties it in more to the superhero side of things as opposed to the TV side of things. Yeah. Alfred's getting that feeling. Like he's reminded, he's getting these flashbacks. Hey, I remember when we were, you know, spies side by side and going on these, you know, adventures. And he had a crush on her from a very early age. But then, of course, the other shoe drops and she says, Oh, you know, when you, when I, when you were trapped with those two living weapons, you know, they said something to you and, and we need to know what it was. It's so important. And so in my mind, it's, it's a little predictable because it's like, okay, so she's not actually a double agent. She's actually uh, pretending to be a double agent or she's a triple agent. If you want to think of it that way. And this whole (laughs) ruse of him being captured and her showing back up and, is it even really her or is it some sort of clone or, you know, uh, it's all to find out what it was that, that Alfred was told by these living weapons. So yeah, a, a little predictable, but despite that, it's no less enjoyable. It's still really fantastic. I think the art is great. Um, I, I'm, you know, this is the only thing I've ever read by Scott, Brian Wilson. I've, I've yeah. seen um, Juan Gideon's art in the past, but, this is a good example of somebody who most of the stuff I've read from him has not been superhero stuff. Uh, this is maybe not all the way superhero. This is, you know, spy and, and political intrigue and what have you, but certainly these, these weapons uh, are very, you know, super heroic in terms of their design or whatnot. And he's able to shift his style to where it, it suits it very, very well. And previous things I've seen him do, I think mostly with aftershock have been a little more abstract. So yeah, uh, yeah I, this is this is a really fun story. And, and like I said at the beginning, uh, it's scratching that itch because I'd miss Alfred in the, the uh, you know, the regular universe. So no, ho- ho- that's one of the things I'm hoping whatever Joshua Williamson's crisis does. God, please let it bring back Alfred. <laughs> that's like my number one hope, uh, <laughs> which seems kind of strange. There's all these other continuity things that, you know, you would want it to fix, but. Man, just bring back Alfred so I can feel like something's right with the DC universe. Agreed. Yep. Uh, So I did look it up in the interest of full disclosure, and it is a bit disheartening. And I suppose it goes back to what we were saying right at the top of the show about how Batman's really the engine that drives DC. Uh, There's no specific numbers, but, you know, there's rankings. Future State Gotham ranks at 92 and it outsells quite a few other DC titles. Uh, the very next one, well, not the very next one, but uh, a, a couple. So DC United, or, or sorry, Titans United, and then Justice League Last Ride. So Future State wow. Gotham is ranked at 92. Justice League Last Ride. This is, again, for, uh, like like you said, Rocky, October. Okay. Justice League Last Ride, number six, next to last issue, which is a fantastic series, is at 100. Okay. I, I, can't, I just... That's, that's criminal. Not- 
That is, it's it's absolutely criminal. But you know, yeah. I just, but I don't know, I don't know, Jace. Maybe we're just old school. We're two, we're a bunch of old guys. Uh, yeah. we, we don't know what we're talking about. But you know, whatever, man. To each whatever. To each there's there's a comic book out there for everyone. But yeah. I am stunned by that. I would not put Future State Gotham there. But hey, man, it's you know, it's a it's a newer audience out there. It's a younger audience. You know, obviously, it must yeah. be appealing to some of them. So, yeah. Let's see a couple others that are below it. Batman versus Big B. The Blue and Gold Booster, Gold and Blue Beetle series, uh, Checkmate, that's not a surprise, Shazam, uh, the Green Arrow Aquaman series, Deep Target, Black Manta, Wonder Woman, Black and Gold. Uh, yeah, so there's some titles that really I feel like should be higher than than that, but be that as it may, that's, that's the reality. So yeah. uh, anyway, let's move on, maybe not to anything better, but uh, something different, Justice League. Versus the Legion of Superheroes, The Gold Lantern Saga Part 1. Written by Brian Michael Bendis, art by Scott Godlewski, colors by Ryan Cody, letters by Dave Sharp. Um, and I'm going to preface this by saying the copy that we have may not be the final copy that gets printed tomorrow. And the reason I say that, there's a couple reasons. So when I look at the credits, um, not all the credits aren't there. There's no credit for the cover artist or the variant cover artist. The other thing that's noticeable to me is when, so we get the advanced preview copies um, or, or actually what they're called is advanced review copies, but we also get something called preview copies, which the preview copies are, are usually four or five pages from the book. A lot of times it's what you see on websites like Newsarama or CBR or whatnot. And they're usually like a couple of the covers and then three or four or five pages from the book that can be shown ahead of time. Now, again, there's only in the review copy we got, there's only 18 pages. It, so are you telling me that, I mean, oh my God, you're bad enough that we're down to 20 pages a month. There's only 18 pages of story here or, or were we missing some pages? I'm worried about that because it did feel like a very quick read. It did. The other thing is the colors feel very washed out i wasn't a fan of the colors and you can kind of even see it yeah. in the the uh, variant cover if you're watching this on youtube the variant cover that rocky's got up on the screen right now the yeah. color like that's the that washed out feeling of that cover is yeah. exactly the feel you get inside now because of that i was like well this is an early on version maybe it's not like the best scan or whatever best digital uh version of this so i went and i looked at the colors in the preview images that we had and the colors are a little brighter a little richer in the preview but still not what i would want for a justice league legion of superheroes book to me that is a quintessential dc superhero book much like rocky was saying uh my first dc comic that i ever bought was a legion of superheroes i think it was number 276 or somewhere in there it had a picture of the legion and there were literal chains around the earth from i think a guy named grimbor who had chain the earth up and Man, i love Boy was, yeah super <laughs> Superboy was um actually pretending ten, pretending to be somebody else because yeah. he had been banned from coming to the future so yeah anyway it was a great story i, I remember it fondly it was a four-part story and i think i bought part three that was like the first one and the reason i bought and i think i've said this on podcast before the reason i loved loved legion of superheroes is in my mind you know i had a very limited budget i was like five six years old very limited budget and it was like okay if i buy this book 
I can learn about a bunch of here. It was about quality or quantity over quantity, right? Like I can learn about a lot of different superpowers because this has a lot of characters as opposed to just buying like Batman or Spider-Man or whatever, where I only get to read about one hero. This one I get to read about a lot and it'll expand my superhero knowledge. So yeah, the first, my first DC love was Legion of Superheroes. So this very much should, should feel like an instant classic superhero comic that needs bright, vibrant colors. And so I, I think that's a failure. And I don't, I don't know if it was, I don't know who decided to go so muted with the colors, but it kind of, it kind of bugged me. It yeah. bugged me that there was only 18 pages. Um, and, and it reminds me of obviously Bendis's version of, of the Legion of Superheroes, which I find to be so strange. The fact that it's one character from this planet, one character from that planet, like there's a, there's a requirement for it. And it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't, his, his Legion of Superheroes never had the familial feel that the classic Legion of Superheroes had to me where, you know, they would do anything for each other. They, even now they feel like strangers, the way they talk to each other in this book, as opposed to, and again, Bendis is writing the regular Justice League. And I don't know how this fits in timeline wise, but why does Black Adam talk like a like a California surf boy all of a sudden? Like he, yeah. in in his regular uh, series, especially in the beginning, he talked in that very regal way that you expect Black Adam to talk because he's been around forever and he's been a, the ruler of his own country, you know, for hundreds of years. I, I, I don't know. I, I just felt like the characterization for the Justice League here felt off. The characterization for the Legion is the same as a characterization in in his uh, in Bendis's regular Legion of Superheroes title, but I was never a fan of that title. So I was hoping that this would be, feel new and different, and but it doesn't. And again, only eighteen pages. Didn't care for the colors. I'm not a big fan of Scott Godlewski's art either. Although there's nothing technically wrong with it. That's just a personal preference. I think his his line works fine, and his transitions and panel layouts and everything are fine, but I just don't care for his rendering. Everything looks blocky to me. Um, but also a big part of the story here has to do with the great darkness saga. And I'm like, well, God, please Bendis don't please DC. Don't let Bendis ruin another classic, you know, DC Legion superhero story. Like, can he come up with any original ideas on his own and stop ruining old, you know, changing the destruction of Krypton mythology and, uh, I don't know. I just didn't care for this. I wanted, I was, I had hopes, but I, I would say I had also had low expectations based on Venice's track record at DC. Yeah. Unfortunately, my, my fears were right on. So yeah, did not care for this and God, I hope it's more than 18 pages. Cause it's not right to charge, you know, full price for this. If it's only 18 pages, 18 pages of Bendis is hard. You know, 20 pages of Bendis is bad enough. Uh, with the quality of stuff he's been putting out lately. And th- this is only 18. That's that's not good. So what are your thoughts, Rocky? Yeah, I, if it's any consolation, and I, I can, spoiler alert, it's no consolation. Uh, pretty much nothing happens in this comic. I mean, nothing nothing of substance. Uh, the, the, in, and in, in an underhanded defense of Bendis, the Great Darkness saga has been over i would say overshadowed by there is a great darkness that's over that is infiltrating the dc universe but that's been i think 
uh, better addressed by Joshua Williamson in the pages of Justice League Incarnate, we, uh, which started in Infinite Frontier, going to Justice League Incarnate, and that will lead in. It's the great darkness that is going to be, presumably, from all the rumors, the big summer crisis event for DC. So what this really establishes is that the great darkness, it has infiltrated the 31st century, and it's also infiltrated the present. So what all you really need to know, and 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 it, this is this is easy to understand. Like this is not a complicated read at all. And in a nutshell, through all the dialogue, which is largely unnecessary, you got Triplicate Girl, who has the ability to to split herself into three selves. Uh, one third of Triplicate Girl, after after the Legion of Superheroes in the future rescue some people or battle a be- battle a, a space beast, and it. Uh, I, I gotta say, Bendis always did that in the Legion, in his Legion of Superheroes run, which is one of the reasons why it it failed to resonate. I think with a lot of readers is that there would be massive fight scenes on pages where where Legion of Superhero members would fight. They would be fighting, but you never knew what they were fighting. Like literally, you, they were just in space swinging a fist. They'd show all, everybody had an action pose, but I didn't know who they were fighting. I, and in this case, at the beginning of this comic. We know they're fighting someone, and, and if you re- you got to read the dialogue to actually find out that they're fighting a beast of some kind, and then they defeat the beast, and at the end of the this fight, suddenly, uh, I think Doru, like there's there's Triplicate Girl, there's Doru, Lornu, and then the third sister whose name I couldn't find. I could Google it. I forget. I mean, thirty five years ago I read Legion of Superheroes. Good grief, uh, in the classic heroes. In any event, one of the Triplicate Girls gets sucked into the into this great darkness and ends up in the, in the, in the present with the justice league and, and, uh, wonder woman also following again, the justice league, Bendis introduces the justice league after they've just defeated a whole slew of villains like captain cold, uh, Solomon Grande and, and green arrow even makes a comment that, Oh my God, that was the best moment of the justice league ever. The bestest ever, you know, uh, (laughs) to quote Doomcock, but in any event, uh, you know, again, it's action that we don't see. We don't know what the stakes are. There's nothing. Just a mention of this great darkness saga. And, uh, you know, so they discover this this one-third of triplicate girl, this this Doru, uh, and they call on... Batman calls on John Kent because she says she's from the Legion of Superheroes. Batman calls John Kent. John Kent, of course, Superboy slash Superman, uh, flies to the 31st century. And for some reason... All the heroes, like the, you would think that in the 31st century that, because they were wondering where, where did, where did Lorno go? Where, where did one third of Triplicate Girl go? And the other Triplicate Girls, two thirds of Triplicate Girl, they're freaking out because they can't merge unless they have their third self. So they're freaking out. So Superboy, John Kent, I guess Superman, flies to the 31st century, says, tells Saturn Girl, who, by the way, he kissed Saturn Girl before he kissed Jay Nakamura. So, you know, anyways, I, I'm in the Saturn Girl camp. But in any event, he tells them, by the way, you know, the other, you know, triple girl girls in in the in the 21st century. And for some reason, the entire Legion of Superheroes has to travel to the past. I mean, bear in mind that Bendis, one of the rules that Bendis established, which he immediately broke, was that you're not supposed to time travel. The United Planets, even in the future, says they got strict rules on time travel. In fact, remember Jor-El, remember Jor-El? He was sent back in the past to die because he violated the rules of time travel when he came to the present. But apparently the Legion of Superheroes can do that and with no consequence. In any event, the Legion of Superheroes comes to the 21st century uh, where, you know, they 
they they meet the Justice League, and and to the surprise of no one who knows Bendis's uh, narrative pattern, uh, there's just pages of conversation where literally all these heroes introduce themselves to each other. Pointless dialogue. It doesn't move the narrative. Um, I mean, I, I mean, it's just, it's 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 just it's just really truly unfortunate. It, nothing really moves, and and then all of a sudden, in the midst of all this, there's a giant. Every, everyone, you know, the Gold Lantern is is in the Justice League, and they're in the Justice League headquarters. And then everyone, the Great Darkness, sucks up everyone. The Legion of Superheroes and the Justice League appear, at least on page eighteen of what we got in these preview copies, have just been sucked up and they've disappeared. And and they're, I'm sure they're going to be taken to some place. And what's going to come of them? I don't know. I Look, I am interested in this. I, I need to know what's going on here because this might, whether we like it or not, while I don't like the idea that Bendis is, con- is in control of this story, this could be significant because it does deal with the great darkness. Um, so we're going to have to wait and see. So I am compelled to read this and, and not just to review it, but... I'll be picking this up because there could be some significant things that are come into play here. And uh, so I just, but it's, you know, as you said, the the coloring, even Gold Lantern, I mean, maybe it's the copy that we got, but the coloring is off. It's Everything's mooted. I'm not a big fan of Godlewski on the art, but, you know, the coloring isn't his fault, but I don't know. I just... I, it's not Bendis's fault either. I I I liked he he at least Bendis on his Legion of Superheroes run. He got um, Ryan Sook to do a majority of the art, and that and that's one of the saving graces of the Legion of Superheroes. That this this series uh, that just went. I guess I guess it ended at issue twelve. Uh, yep. I think, but in any event, uh, the jury is still out. But yeah, I'm definitely disappointed in this in this issue. It it didn't do a great job of sort of. Uh, it, it didn't really establish the stakes. I mean, all it is is a, it's just a really, just a really boring way to start off a great darkness saga. Yeah, and like again, eighteen pages. I was I was kept scrolling like, okay, where's the rest? Like, I need, like, give me, hook me. You haven't even hooked me yet. Yeah, yeah it was it was definitely boring. And I, I will say, as far as Bendis, you mentioned it, uh, and we've talked about it on the show before about how he. When he puts people on a page, everybody's got to say something. It actually wasn't as bad as I expected it to be, but I went in expecting, you know, oh my God, it's Justice League and Legion of Superheroes. Just imagine how many characters are going to be in a panel. And I think there are some panels where characters don't say anything. So it must have been excruciating for him to not have everything. So it wasn't as bad as I I thought. Well, not only that, the last two pages, pages 17 and 18, pages 17 just shows the Gold Lantern in front of the Justice League table, the round table, and the, the, the page eighteen is an exact duplication of the previous page, but the colors are mooted. Yep. And he says hello. So it it also I don't know. I mean maybe yeah, a bit less. Now, now we're down to sixteen pages. Well, basically, yeah, basically. So this was just uh, it wasn't an effective use of the real estate. I mean, I mean, you don't have a lot of real estate anyway if you're just dealing with eighteen pages. But wow, this was uh, you know maybe you know look maybe we can. You know, I hope that maybe we'll get a few extra pages in the actual physical copy, but I can't help but be disappointed from this. Yeah, agreed. Uh, all right, well, let's move on. Another Batman title, Batman Urban Legends number 11. We got 
all new stories starting in this issue. If you remember last issue, issue 10, the December issue was a bunch of uh, holiday-centric stories, which I quite enjoyed. This time we've got a Batman and Zatanna story starting, uh, Bound to Our Will, part one of six. It's from writer, writer Vita Ayala. Nicola, uh, I always have a hard time with this name, um, Simezia, I think it is. It's C-I-Z-M-E-S-I-J-A, so very much Eastern European. Handles the art, Nick Filardi on color, Steve Wands on letters. White Witch, and that's White, W-I-G-H-T, which if you're not familiar with what that means, it means a, something that's supernatural. Uh, and that's the character from Ram V's Catwoman series. So uh, White Witch in Stigma, it's a three-part story. It's written by Ram V, the creator of the character. Anand Radhakarishanan is the artist. <laughs> really getting me on these names this, this week. John Pearson does the colors of Ditya Bidikar on letters. Eternity, as in Kid Eternity, in Eternity in Gotham, part one of three, by Mohel Mashigo. The artist is uh, Arist Dayan, who also does the colors. I think that's how you say the last name. Again, apologies if I can get that wrong. It's the last name spelled D-E-Y-N, so maybe it's just Dane or Den. Uh, Seda Temafonte does the letters. And then we finish up with Ace the Bathound in Hounded, a part one of six stories starring Ace the Bathound. I love it. Uh, Mark Russell's the writer. Carl Mostert is the artist. Trish Mulvihill does colors and Steve Wands on letters. So um, there's a couple of these stories I don't have a lot to say about, but I, I will talk about each of them in turn. Uh, Rocky, what, I'll let you go first. What you have thoughts on all of them? Some of them? Uh, what do you think? Uh, I was uh, actually my my favorite was my favorite was the uh, the, the hound, and it's it, part one is called the trap. I, Learning something about Ace the Bat, the Bat Hound. I mean, that's uh, that that was my that was my favorite story by far. I, I actually just breezed over the the, the other ones. I just it, with Batman and Zatanna, I wasn't really a fan of the artistic style. I just uh, uh, look my uh, uh, I'm I'm gonna cheat a bit, and I'm gonna I'm gonna start with. Uh, that's the problem. Sorry that I'm jumping ahead here. It's the last story on. It's the last story. But to me, uh, it, there seems to be some inconsistency. It says the hound. They call it the hound part one of. Uh, but it's actually called the trap when you actually get to it. It's written by Mark Russell. Uh, Ace. Uh, this is a great origin story for Ace Batman's dog. Now, what I love about this, and now this is not the first story that has ever been written about Bat the idea of Batman having a dog, but I think this is a potential speculator alert for this series. There's a great alternate cover uh, that is above you for those watching on YouTube. There's a fantastic the cover, one of the covers for Batman in uh, Urban Legends, uh, Batman Urban Legends number eleven. It shows the Bat Hound, and the focus is clearly on the on Ace the Bat Hound. Ace gets his name from, I'm assuming, Ace Chemicals, because Ace used to be the Joker's dog, and he was abused. And this is an origin story for uh, Ace, <laughs> for the dog Ace, and just how Batman acquired him. Batman acquired him after an, an adventure with the Joker. He could have easily let Ace be put to sleep, be put down, but he loved Ace. He, a he, he presumably had Ace got trained, and he, he. 
my compliments to Mark Russell, and I'm so glad to be able to give some compliments to Mark Russell because I know I've been hard on him on One Star Squadron. <laughs> and so I'm really glad and I'm happy to report, uh, along with uh, artist Carl Mostert, I think they did a really great job here on this story. I really, I, I actually, I love this. I thought this was brilliant how Batman uses Ace. And, you know, they're, they, they basically, they're going to a hostage-taking where uh, they have to, you know, they're looking for, they're they're looking for the terrorists and they're looking for the prisoners. And Alfred says, "Well, how are you going to find them?" And 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 Batman says, "Well, we're going to use smell." I mean, so he's using the dog to, to you know, he's he's using Ace to basically help locate uh, the terrorists. And you know, I have to give writer Mark Russell some credit here. I love what he did with the story. I love the fact that the actual hostages are in fact in on it. And it's actually Hugo Strange that is setting everything up and he's working in conjunction with these terrorists who are basically hired to take out Batman. And and Hugo Strange actually ends up at the end in what is actually kind of a a, a massive surprise to me is he, he's, he's got bombs strapped to him and Hugo Strange... You know, Batman calls his bluff saying, look, Hugo, I know you. You're not going to kill yourself. This isn't who you are. I've we fought you before. You're not going to blow up. You're not a guy who wears a suicide vest. Where's this coming from? But unbeknownst to Batman, Hugo Strange lets him know that he's had an epiphany and, and a light. You know, no one apparently told you that he's wearing a fancy dress and uh, and this fancy dress, which is consists of this bomb, these bombs strapped to him. It, it he's basically dying of stage stage five cancer. And he kills himself. And he kills himself literally to sacrifice himself to take Batman out. Incapacitates Batman. Meanwhile, Ace the Hound is... is uh, There's a taser used on Ace because taser... Or pardon me, Ace takes out two of the terrorists himself. But, but he rescues the hostages. But the hostages are in on it. So they taser Ace. And uh, so both Ace and, and... Ace ends up getting taken back to the Gotham Pet Cemetery where the idea is is that they might they might end up you know doing experiments on Ace and return him to his previous owner which means that they might return Ace back to the Joker so that's the, that's the danger there meanwhile Batman is sent to to Europe because this this is all a massive plan to get because somebody has paid Hugo Strange to because he to basically sacrifice his life to inca incapacitate Batman to get Batman to people that want to be able to to, to to basically buy Batman and put Batman's head on a lance, so to speak, to to you know to brag that they killed Batman. And so this is a hell of a story. Like this was like personally, this was my story of the week. I love this story. I I ab I absolutely loved it. And uh before we talk about the other stories, I'll let you comment on this one. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I agree with you. It's by far the best story uh well, maybe not by far, but it, it was my favorite story in the issue. I thought the art by Carl Mostert was fantastic. Yeah, it was a shock, you know, when Hugo Strange says, I have stage four cancer. You're like, that's at that point, the first time you realize that maybe he will blow himself up. Because before that, you're thinking right along with Batman. Hugo Strange, there's no way you're going to blow yourself up. You're too much of an egomaniac. But <laughs> no soon, sooner does he say, I, I have stage four cancer, click, and he, and he blows himself up. So, um, yeah, it was a fantastic story the only thing i wasn't clear on um and again it's a minor thing but when batman's laying there the first time we see batman 
after the explosion, he's laying on the ground and he doesn't look quite right. And I, I had to keep looking at it several times. Yeah, that page there before I realized what's wrong. He doesn't have his belt there. So did the force of the explosion like blow it off of him? Like, I feel like they should have had one of the, the bad guys like kneeling next to him removing his belt. Because clearly yeah. you're going to remove his utility belt so he doesn't have access to any of his tools. Even though we know Batman's got all kinds of stuff hidden in his cowl and, and this and that. So, uh, but yeah, I enjoyed it for a lot of the same reasons you did. Um, the way Batman uses Ace throughout, I thought was fantastic. I'm a big dog guy. I've got, we have three dogs. So yeah, I, I really, I really enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, it, it, again, it's so, so different than a lot of the things that Mark Russell has, has done in the past. You know, a lot of times he writes satire. This is, this is pretty straightforward superhero storytelling here. Uh, and I'm, I'm a fan of Carl Mostert's art. I know not everybody is. He does have a distinctive style. Yeah. Uh, and he's one of those artists that sometimes he can go a little too far with detail, kind of like Frank uh, Frank Quitely at, at times, where the art gets too much detail and it, it kind of bogs down. Um, but yeah, I thought I thought this was this was fantastic. So uh, as as far as the other stories, I yeah, I kind of agree with you. It's not not the best style for the the first story with Batman and Zatanna, but I, I did think it was interesting. It kind of plays on a little bit of a personal relationship between Batman and Zatanna. But what's so interesting, right? You talk about these characters, these DC Justice League characters that have been around for decades and decades. Um, you start sort of running out of ideas. So eventually you end up pairing them up with everybody, right? Like Batman's gone on a date with, uh, with Wonder Woman. Now he's hanging out with Zatanna and then it's Catwoman. Then it's, you know, Cheetah or, or whoever. Um, and so I, I appreciated that kind of interesting take on, on the relationship between Batman and Zatanna, but yeah, it, it didn't feel like the most original story idea from Vita Ayala. Uh, I'm a big fan of them. I think that they are a, a fantastic talent. So jury's still out on this one. It is a six part story that Vita is going to be writing. So I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but yeah, the, the art style wasn't my my favorite. Although I did like the art in that one better than the second story, the white, uh, the white witch story, which I I I don't know. I go like I think Ramvi's super talented, but it was almost like he was trying to write this sort of abstract way in this story. It does, it's not necessarily a linear storyline, um, and I don't feel like the art. It's it's uh, watercolor. And it's very impressionistic. And I feel like the art did, did the story any favors. It's already sort of hard to follow. And then the art doesn't doesn't really help explain. Uh, although I am curious to learn a little bit more about the White Witch. Uh, as far as the Kid Eternity story, uh, I enjoyed it. I think th that the art was uh, suitable for the tone of the story. I don't know a lot about Kid Eternity, but putting... Kid Eternity in Gotham, I think, is a very interesting way to do it. I mean, if you're not familiar, basically, he can see dead people. You know, think of him as Haley Joel Osment in uh, in Sixth Sense, right? So he works. At, so if you could see dead people, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to work as a as a coroner. That seems like really leaning into your curse or gift, however you want to look at it. Um, but I think he would be an interesting addition to to Gotham. So I wouldn't mind seeing him show up in some Batman. Uh, related material. So again, jury's out on that one for me. It's only, you know, the first of the, these two middle stories are only three parts, but uh, I, I enjoyed it. It wasn't my favorite, but I, I thought it was interesting. Um, 
and again, I'm not familiar with the, the creator Mohail Mashigo, but yeah, I thought, I thought it was pretty solid. We'll see what happens. So uh, any comments on the, the other three stories, Rocky, or should we uh, move on? Uh, yeah, well, just a couple of comments. I, I really, I thought the White Witch story was pretty good. I think the White Witch story, I think she she should have gotten her own individual comic uh, instead of the Gardener, <laughs> which was a which was a redundant character because we 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 didn't need just a redundant character, which was just sort of a, she was a redundant character reflecting just a, a different colored poison ivy. That was a redundancy. Uh, the White Witch is actually a unique character, and I would have liked to have seen she her, that she get her own comic book. She's got an interesting, she's got an interesting, uh, I think, an interesting history, an interesting story, and it's connected the, to uh, Ghostmaker. And I think I think it's just more interesting. And she's she's a cool looking character. I mean, I really I like the art. I I loved her. She's got that sort of honeycomb sort of style with her with with her imagery. I think she's just a really fascinating character. And I think it's unfortunate that she never got her own comic. But I, I like this short story. I would have liked to have seen this White Witch origin story if they could have somehow, if Ram V could have incorporated this more into a in his Catwoman series, or if it was incorporated into Fear State more. When I think of how much Fear State dragged on for so many issues, it would have been so nice to have had the, this White Witch character flushed out, flushed out instead of her origin being sort of hidden away in this Batman Urban Legends, which I don't think it's going to get an adequate enough attention, in, in my opinion. Uh, my comment about Kid Eternity, eh, it's it's okay. I, I think Kid Eternity got uh, another detective in Gotham that talks to dead people. That's not bad. I guess I guess we've gotten that before. It sort of reminds me. Um, there's another series. It was a Vertigo series. Uh, it there was even a series on TV. It feel uh, yeah, I Zombie. Yeah, I Zombie. Right. I remember the Vertigo series. I Zombie. I love that. Drawn by Mike Alright, I think it was. And yep. I, I really enjoyed it. And so I kind of like the concept, even though Kid Eternity might be a little bit redundancy. I think he came. I think he existed before <laughs> I Zombie. Anyway, yep. so technically he came first. But so I like that idea. Uh, one thing for 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 Batman fans who like Batman and Zatanna, this this story with Batman and Zatanna, what's interesting about it that might ruffle some feathers depending on your sensibility, is this really establishes that Bruce Wayne was in love with Zatanna, that he was in love with her when they were younger, and they got into an adventure when they were younger that that Bruce Wayne wanted to dedicate show his commitment to her, but by doing so that got mixed up with a magic spell that commitment, and. And every year they have to go and they have to deal with the consequences with uh, of a bond that they established when they were younger, and and uh, it's actually a really good character driven story. Whereas even there's there's a great scene even between Superman and Batman where Superman is sort of wondering and saying, "Hey Bruce, I know that you and Zatanna every time of year at around the same time you kind of leave with each other, you go off on the weekend and you come back." I mean, we know what that usually means in our world. <laughs> So, you know, I'm not, is everything okay? Is there something you want to tell me? But no, no. And uh, it's, I think it's going it, to, I'm really curious to see where this goes, but because there was something that happened between Batman and Zatanna and some machinations that, that as a result of their commitment to each other and their inability to let go or maybe address some of their feelings that they had for each other in the past, I think is having an impact on this spell that continues to follow them into the present day. And so I think it's a very clever way for the writer uh, to get into the heads of both these characters. There's a great scene where they're in, they're in a Batmobile and, and Batman is a Tana. I mean, it's, 
you know, they're they're not really talking to each other. There's a lot they're not they're not opening to they're not opening up with each other. It's like they're they're going through the same routine every year and clearly there's issues that they haven't dealt with. And I kind of like that because Zatanna has never been one to really open up all that much with John Constantine. So I think that Zatanna and Bruce Wayne are characters that have do have quite a bit in common. And you can kind of see why they, there was that initial early on attraction between the two of them. But I do think, I just want to give a, a, it's bothering me here. I want to give a credit to the, uh, the uh, v- Vida Ayala, the, the writer. I think she stumbled upon a pretty good concept here. I'm really curious to, to see where she takes where she takes this story. So, uh, you know, that's, that's probably my second favorite story in the, in the, in this, in this particular issue. Yeah. I think Vita does a great job. Like I said, they're super talented. Uh, so uh, I always pay attention when, when they, when they write something, uh, one other thing I'll say about kid eternity and then we'll move on is that I should be clear. Like, I think, I think he's a good addition to Gotham, but I wouldn't want to see him. You know, you mentioned you use the word detective when you describe him. I I would like to see him more as just bringing cases to the Bat family and then kind of backing off, like being in the background, sort of. I think that would be most interesting. So, but anyway, let's move on. We've got Robin and Batman number three from writer Jeff Lemire, art and colors by Dustin Nguyen, letters by Steve Wands. This is the last of this. of this title that's in continuity. I was going to say this black label book, but it's actually in continuity. How do you think that it wrapped up? Sorry, I'm trying to find it here. Uh, geez. It, it's frustrating. I'm trying to find it and I'm, I'm looking for Batman and Robin, not Robin and Batman. Robin and and that Batman. actually threw me off. Can you believe it? <laughs> Delayed me by 40 seconds to find it. <laughs> but uh, I haven't, I haven't minded this series. I, my second, the second issue was my, was my, was my favorite issue where 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 young young Dick Grayson was you know meets the Teen Titans for the the young younger Teen Titans members for the first time and he reports back to Batman. This issue here, I actually uh, uh, this was uh, this was okay. It's okay. I, you know, I actually think that a lot of people are really loving this series. I don't. I think this was. Uh, I think this series. I think the second issue was the best. I'm not. I don't know. I it's it's funny. I, I've maybe it's because I just feel I always criticize my own memory, but for some reason I seem to remember a lot of Robin stories, and so this one, you know, seemed kind of a little bit, uh, tro- you know, a little bit tropey to me. I I didn't mind it. Jeff Lemire's done a good job here. I mean, the fact that I'm I'm even enjoying it in the first place when there's been a billion Robin stories is a compliment to him. I love Dustin Nugent on the art and the colors. It's sort of a nice, it's a nice change. Um, again, this is a uh, Dick Grayson. There's a lot of great moments here that Jeff Lemire just nails. Uh, I love there's, there's a fight scene here where, you know, they're, they're fighting some goons and, and Dick Grayson literally, I mean, Batman tells him, Batman tells him at one point, don't be myopic. You know, they're, they're fighting. They got these people around them and they're fighting and Batman's warning him, you know, watch your back. Don't be myopic. Watch your guard. And, uh, and, uh, you know, Dick Grayson says to him, I see the whole picture. I do, but do you? And then he, he ends up saving Batman's life and Batman tells him, you know, don't get cocky, you know? <laughs> I mean, so there's some, you really see how Dick Grayson, why, you know, uh, how Dick Grayson really came into his own. It wasn't just that he was good, but he had a capacity even at an early age to stand up to Batman and gain gain Bruce's respect uh, because 
he you know he understood Bruce and they they you know I mean of course there's a there's that always that father son dynamic which is always there but you know it's uh you, you could really see uh you could really see uh, why Batman and Dick formed this bond what some of the higher points in this issue for me is I don't normally when I think of Dick Grayson I don't think of an angry person but there is one particular scene here that stood out where he's where Dick Grayson is upset where he's actually almost like breaking the nose of one of these goons and he wants to know where Killer Croc is and he's angry and Batman is you know and he's angry and he's hitting this guy and Batman is telling Dick Grayson enough he's had enough Robin I mean I mean normally when if if you were to tell me to pick the characters in that scene I would have guessed that maybe it was Robin telling Batman to calm down you know often because it's often Batman that for whatever reason sometimes goes a little bit uh, batty <laughs> pardon the pun but in any event, I thought it was well done. I loved how Alfred wants to get Dick Grayson to go to school. And he's got to be sort of like the, the sober second thought to Bruce Wayne. Because Bruce Wayne, very selfishly, he, he's Bruce Wayne almost has the attitude toward Dick Grayson going to school. As Dick Grayson initially has, saying, I don't need to go to school today. We're, we're doing this. I'm, I'm smart. I don't need to go. And, and it's Alfred that you, you could really see the influence of Alfred making sure that, you know, no, you got to have a normal life. You know, life isn't all about nocturnal activities where you're going out and doing ridiculously crazy things, dressed up in in a circus outfit, you know, with, with a dark night, you know, battling the, the worst of the worst in Gotham. So I, I really like how this is done here. And I really like how sort of Bruce Wayne sort of like, it's sort it's like they're two dads, you know, it's almost like, it's like, it's like a crazy twisted, darker version of two and a half men, you know, <laughs> trying to raise this kid. And in that respect, I enjoyed it. The larger narrative I enjoyed because it's Killer Croc ends up going to the school looking for Robin. And because he, all the Killer Croc knows is that one of the students at the school is, is likely Robin. And this, the bat, the battle sequence that comes out in the way Jeff Lemire tells the story and Batman ends up coming to this school. I thought it was very well done. And, you know, again, I enjoyed it. I think people are going to love this. I, I believe that this is the final issue of this Robin and Batman series. I think this is going to deservedly sell very well in trade. And I do recommend that people pick it up. Um, again, it's probably nece not necessarily something new, but uh, there is something that every single issue, there's something to enjoy in each of these individual issues. And so I really hope this sells well as a trade. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it as well. You know, like, like we were saying, it's, it's very much the, you know, the origin of, of Dick Grayson, but through his own eyes, as opposed to most of the early stories we've gotten of, uh, of Dick Grayson have been, you know, through the eyes of, of Batman. So I, I appreciated that aspect of it. it, it and I also found it interesting you know, he's narrating it himself and he's talking about embracing the darkness, which I would never have thought of Dick Grayson as, as doing that. I felt much more like a Batman thing, but it's interesting. The, the journey that Lemire takes Dick on, it's like he embraces the darkness so he can come out the other side of it uh, and see the light, uh, which kind of explains how he becomes who, who he becomes. So yeah, overall, I thought this was good, not great. Um, it felt like it had a lot more potential. I was I was surprised by this last issue. This last issue is kind of my least favorite. I, th I thought the other two promised a little bit more of an impactful ending, um, but I think it's still very very good. Um, but 
I don't know if it's like a seminal uh, Dick Grayson story, which I, I sort of thought it might be in the beginning. Uh, as far as the art goes, I mean, if you like Dustin Wynn's art, you're going to love this. Uh, as longtime listeners know, I'm not a fan of watercolor <laughs> when it comes to art. Uh, <laughs> so it's not my favorite art. It's just, you know, I prefer clean lines and I like when the color stays inside the lines and that's not watercolor. You know, it's much more impressionistic. So, uh, which is so strange to me because, you know, Dustin Wynn, back when he was with Wildstorm, his art style was so wildly different than, than what it is now. You know, not to say that that art styles can't change over time, but yeah, he's definitely embraced that, uh, and yeah, more power to him. So, uh, okay, up next we have I Am Batman number five, Goodbye Gotham from writer John Ridley. We have Christian Doucet, Juan Ferreira, and Laura Braga on art. Rex Locust does the colors, Troy Petrie on letters. Uh, let me talk about the art first. Um, I'm sure. Again, long-time listeners of the podcast are going to know what I'm going to say. Why oh why do we have three different artists on this book? Uh, at least their <laughs> styles aren't really different, which helps. You know, it doesn't doesn't pull us out of the story. I, I sort of wish that we got Juan Ferreira art throughout because I, I liked his art the best. Um, not that the Laura Braga art in the beginning was bad and the Christian Doucet art at the end is not bad either. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I'm a big fan of Juan, Juan Ferreira. So yeah, the art was, it was good. All three of them were good, but having all three mashed together wasn't not, was not ideal. Um, as far as the story goes. So I like that at the end, I mean, the story is named goodbye Gotham that we find, find out that Jace Fox is going to go, to New York. So, uh, and him and his father even talk about it, uh, when he says, you know, as long as I stay in Gotham, I'll always be the other Batman or the replacement Batman or as a substitute Batman. Uh, and his father's like, yeah, the truth is you are Batman. And that got me thinking, is he though? Like it's, I have no problem with them putting a black man in, in the Batman suit. The problem I have is it doesn't feel, first of all, we never have seen an interaction between Bruce Wayne and, jace fox not that i think bruce wayne necessarily has to give him his blessing or something like that but it would be nice to have some acknowledgement that bruce wayne is aware that this other guy's out there acting like batman because it feels this feels like such an afterthought and we've talked extensively about how it feels like dc's not doing john ridley any favors here um but there's also a part of me that's like think about everything batman went through right like he his parents died and he literally disappeared for years and traveled the world to train himself to become batman yeah jace fox has done nothing similar not in terms of dedication and of earning the right to be called batman i mean we we've talked in, in this episode like we do a lot of times in dc spotlight about how batman is the engine that that drives dc right like He's the one that pays the bills. Um, so obviously he, in that respect, he is the most important character at DC Comics. Mm-hmm. I say all the time, the quality of the Superman titles and how the Superman titles are going and being received and selling, that has everything to do with how comic fans are perceiving. Like, how is DC doing as a company? Look to Batman. How is DC doing as a company in terms of sell- sales-wise and paying bills? Look to Batman. So... Batman is an important character, but this guy's just been thrown in. We're calling him Batman. Doesn't feel earned. 
I thought maybe we would get some of that, some, some feeling of how he's earned it in this series. We haven't. Um, there's a moment in this series where he's fighting against a guy and his, his mask gets broken off and you can see one little corner of his face, one little tiny nostril and mouth. And his dad immediately recognizes him as Jace, which I found to be maybe stretching it just a little bit, especially since they've been estranged <laughs> for so long. Um, but in the end, that moment kind of brings it back home to Lucius Fox, like what he's been doing, what he's been, uh, how he's been acting, using the Wayne Foundation and going, you know, working with magist the magistrate and what have you. That felt a little ex deus machina. Like I've talked extensively about how this, the way this guy's been acting doesn't feel at all like Lucius Fox, but to have it turned around like the way it did, it didn't feel like I'm sure it was supposed to be impactful and emotional, but it landed flat for me. And then his, his contriteness didn't come across accurately to me like this. I don't know th this, the, the best thing about this book is like I said, get Jace Fox out of Gotham, let him go to New York and let him become his own character and stop calling him Batman, get him a different costume, whatever. I, I think he, he's worth that. Um, or let him do something to, to actually earn the title of Batman and put him in the main Batman book and take Bruce Wayne off the table for, I'm fine with that as well. Having them both side by side, it doesn't feel like you're doing either one of them uh, any favors. And so, yeah, it, this isn't really working for me, but maybe with him in, in New York, maybe it, it'll, it'll flip around and I'll, I'll start enjoying it more, but I don't know. This just, it, it's the end of the first arc and it, it landed with a dud for me didn't didn't work so uh what were your thoughts rocky well i, I do think uh, a, a number of things i'll be more I'll, I'll come i'll come to his defense i'll get I'll, I'll i'll play the counterpoint there is a part of me that agrees with you but in the interest of uh of us going uh you know uh being a counterpoint i'll say that i do think that this the first five issues has succeeded in showing jace as being very heroic He's willing to sacrifice his life, and in this, that was really driven home. This issue, he was willing to die to save, uh, to save the the people that there. There was a couple of street people here that were willing to come to his aid and give his and give their life even for him because Jace had, as Batman, had helped them out during Fear State, and they're coming to help him because he's being attacked and he's basically being taken out by by the very people that his father is controlling, and. And it's it's really a it's really a gut punch. I mean, not only is Lucius Fox the head of the Fox family and the head of Fox Industries now, which basically he acquired through Wayne Tech, but his son Jace is sort of like stolen like the Bat Tech, became Batman. Somehow Lucius Fox wasn't really aware of that until this issue. Meanwhile, there, there Lucius's daughter Tamara comes out of a coma in the hospital but still has impaired motor skills although she's got her her cogn her cognition is re returned and her mental acuity is fine but physically she's going to have to go through some physical therapy the best place to do that is new york uh you know this was this was basically this the fox family what these first five issues established granted in a somewhat convoluted manner be and with unfortunately with the confusion caused by fear state I'm not going to put all of this on John Ridley. The 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 craziness and the 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 wonky continuity of Fear State is not all on John Ridley, 
I mean, DC has been wonky on its continuity with respect to the Batman titles all last year, coming into this year. And I don't put that all on John Ridley. What I am going to give Ridley for is that, uh, and I know I feel more favorable on this respect than you do, Jace, but I do think that Ridley has succeeded in getting me, at least for me, I do care about the Fox family. I, I do think uh, that there's this is, a, this is a family in dysfunction, but it's a family that functions in its dysfunction. And I thought that came through, I thought that came through reasonably well. And the fact now that they're all deciding as a family to go to New York City, because that's where the best treatment is for Tamara. It also, it's completely understandable to me that Jace wants to get out of Gotham and establish his own person, his own identity in his, as, as his own Batman. As Lucius Fox says to his son in the final pages here, he says to his son, represent. And of course, the idea of represent, clearly that there are some political undertones to that. And maybe that might ruffle some readers' feathers, but I think it's perfectly in keeping with, number one, what John Ridley wants to get across. But also the idea that, you know, we talked about before how Jace is, as Batman always wore that mask because he was hiding the color of his skin. And that isn't right. He shouldn't have to hide the color of his skin. And so I think that was very symbolic at the end. Okay, you know, he's in a fight and the fight, you know, at one point a fist knocks the, knocks the thing off and it exposes him. And, you know, Jace always felt like the imposter Batman. Well, I think that I don't want, I, I choose not to come out of this series thinking that Jace is nothing but a, a subpar Batman, a replacement Batman. His heart's in the right place. And look, we've had Batman Incorporated. We've got Batman analog characters all over the world. The fact that we're going to have one now in New York, I think, is perfectly in keeping with Batman continuity. I think it, uh, it's, it stays true to the spirit of Batman. And even though it was a little bit wonky, the fact is, is that Bruce Wayne has left Gotham now. Jace is leaving Gotham for, for, for New York City. But the spirit of Batman is, is still alive and well. And, and that's, that's the most positive spin I can put on it. And I'm, I'm looking forward to a sort of a, this is a potentially new experience and a new take on Batman, or at least a new way to approach Batman in a completely different city with completely different rogues gallery in New York. And my fingers are crossed that we've got a lot to look forward to now that finally Chase can at least, at least theoretically start fresh without the baggage of Bruce Wayne hanging over his shoulders. Yeah, again, I really wish they just called him something different to make him his own, you know, and don't don't make him a, a, a first of all, you know, he's a he's a hero of color, uh, person of color, what have you, as Batman, and I get why you want to do that, right? Like DC would want to do that to show that even the legacy characters can can be you know minority heroes, but at the same time, like. I don't necessarily think you need to take the Batwing identity away from Luke Fox, but call him, I don't know, Bat Talon or Bat, I guess Talon wouldn't work because of the <laughs> Court of Owls, but, but something, um, some, something, call, call him something Bat related. Um, and then you could even have him team up with Batwing at some point. Like, I love that Batwing series. I, I, it, I get that it's a little bit of a derivative character, but Batman sells just let him be his own guy, you know? So I, I don't know. I have mixed, I have mixed feelings about it, but I agree with you. Like get him out of Gotham, put him in New York, let him be his own. And now maybe without the stigma of this dysfunction of the Fox family, I've talked about it in the past, how it hasn't really worked for me and, and just give us stories of, of Jace Fox being a hero out from under the shadow of Batman and out of the, 
away from the drama as family can be, you know, a good, good series. I guess we'll see. Uh, all right, moving on. We got Titans United number five. It's titled Black Zero. This is from writer Kevin Scott, Jose Luis on pencils, Jonas Trinidad on inks, Rex Locus on colors, and Wes Abbott on letters. We had a fantastic reveal of the the brainwashed, is how I'll label it, the brainwashed Connor Kent or brainwashed Superboy in the last issue. Uh, so this one picks up right where that one left off with Wonder Girl battling uh, Connor. Black Zero, whenever she tries to call him Superboy, he gets mad and yells at her, my name is Black Zero. And it's a great character uh, design from Jose Luis. The art throughout the issue is fantastic. The colors, again, fantastic. We've talked about how, how classic this book feels uh, in terms of, you know, just a classic heroic DC superhero comic. Like this is the way the Justice League uh, Legion of Superheroes should be colored with these bright exactly. colors that help give it the, the fantastic feel. You don't need to read anything else. You don't need to have any other context yeah. or know anything about continuity. It stands and how about that cover? How about that Donna Troy cover? Huh? Isn't that gorgeous? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Donna Troy. Yeah. And I think the Hawk and Dove covers great as well. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's not a lot wrong with this book. Uh, I'm loving it. If if I had to nitpick something, uh, at the end of the issue, we see that all the Titans have been captured by uh, Blackfire, um, and I'm sure it happened. It, it, it's in the interest of just not having enough real estate to tell the story. I sort of wish that he had 12 issues instead of only seven, because then the story could breathe a little more. And I feel like up until this issue, I haven't felt like it was rushed at all. Um, but this issue, it just felt like we we missed out on seeing some fantastic action of um, of these these titans that were captured fighting against the forces of of, uh, of Blackfire, because basically what we're told is, hey Blackfire, you won, you are they says you are victorious, Queen Commander. The titans are defeated and the earth is yours. So it's like, well, hold on, <laughs> Black Zero <laughs> came down and was fighting Donna Troy, and other battles were happening around the world as. Blackfire was trying to take over the earth. Um, and, and, you know, we got a couple scenes of that and that was great. Uh, but we only got a couple scenes. It would have been nice to have a few issues of that battle. Um, but again, probably for reasons of space. Uh, and yeah, the fact that this is selling less than, uh, than future state Gotham is, is a travesty. Is This there, is so, yeah. so much more fun. And, you know, I would argue you can't just pick up an issue of uh, Future State Gotham and really understand what's going on. It's a lot more convoluted. Like, why is what is the magistrate? Why is this the future of DC? Like, what the heck's going on? Much easier to get on board with Titans United for somebody who's not familiar. So, I, I continue to love this series uh, so much so that my you know my one complaint about it is I want more. <laughs> I want more of the. I want I want the story to be able to breathe more. So. Yeah, uh, I thought it was great. What'd you think, Rocky? Uh, I loved it. Uh, Connor uh, Connor Kent coming back as this new character, Black Zero. To my knowledge, and I I don't I believe that's a that's a new incarnation. That's a that's a new character. I mean, or a new iteration of the character. To my yep. knowledge, but people can correct me if I'm wrong on that. I love this. I I was actually, and I love the reminder of the relationship between Blackfire and Starfire in this issue. How this made me feel sympathy. You know, Blackfire is a complete bitch in this issue, but I actually felt sorry for her at points because it showed her childhood. 
you know, Blackfire, you know, it reminded me because I had forgotten. And, and I'm ashamed to say I'd forgotten what Blackfire's origin was. Blackfire was, was you know, the sister, of course, of, of Starfire. But growing up on Tamaran, Blackfire never had any powers. She could never fly. She was, she's like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer with the nose. You know, she couldn't play in all the reindeer games, you know, because unlike her sister, she never had the powers to fly. And Blackfire grew up resentful of that and ultimately betrayed her family and betrayed all of Tamaran and, uh, because she, she betrayed her entire family uh, to another alien race so she could, in return for gaining su powers, superpowers that ultimately made her Blackfire and the arch enemy of her sister. But there's a tragedy to that. And, and the action here, and it's, you know, I, I, even the... Even the comments, I mean, this issue solidifies, you know, many of us were asking when this first issue came out of this series, why is Jason Todd here? Because Jason Todd was sort of the wild card because he's never been a member of the Teen Titans before. And it, what, what comes, what really comes here is that, you know, there's misdirection. It's not Jason Todd that ends up becoming Black Zero, indoctrinated and brainwashed and controlled by Blackfire. It's, it's actually Connor Kent. And of course, Connor Kent, doesn't like Jason Todd, and so there's some misdirection there, and uh, even the use of the the lasso of persuasion. I got to give writer Kevin Scott here uh, a lot of credit. He understands the principles of the difference between the lasso of persuasion versus the magic lasso of Wonder Woman, and he uses it to great effect. He understands the interplay of these characters. He knows these characters well. There isn't an overuse of dialogue. Everything that somebody says has a point and has a purpose, and this and the coloring is just fantastic. I mean, uh, Trinidad on the on the on the coloring. The colors here just really pop off the page, and we just get the preview copies. And as you, you've indi we've indicated in the past, we're not always sure if if the preview copies we get are necessarily reflective of the actual physical copies. But if if this is a <laughs> if the if the colors are actually better in the physical copy than what this is, oh my god. I, very impressive. The covers are fantastic. Love that Donna Troy cover. It's death speculator alert. It's one of the best Donna Troy covers I've seen in a very long time. Absolutely gorgeous. I'm really, really enjoying this. I love the callbacks to Titans lore. Kevin Scott, he knows these characters. He knows the history of these characters. If you love Teen Titans, you know, people are singing George Perez love. If you're a fan of the George Perez, Marv Wolf or New Teen Titans, if you're not reading T uh, Titans United, you're crazy, guys. Go to your comic shop, put it on your list, get the back issues, show this comic book some love. And uh, no disrespect to, to Future State Gotham, but there's no way this comic should be <laughs> underselling that. That's unbelievable. Yeah, and I, I haven't watched any of the Titans TV show, but it's right on the cover for, and has been every issue of the series. Um, you know, watch Titans on HBO Max. I, I got to think that the characterizations of these characters here must be similar to the characterizations on the show. Um and it's not like they're far off from the characterization of the classic characterizations of the characters. So this definitely feels like a bridge between the two. So if you like the Titans TV show, definitely give this a shot. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Detective Comics number 1048, The Tower Part 2, written by writer Mariko Tamaki. Yvonne Reese does the pencils. Danny Mickey on colors. Brad Anderson on colors. Ariana Mare does the letters. And we also have the backup story about the, uh, the little boy whose family was killed by the Joker. Uh, second part of that story, it's written by Matthew Rosenberg, art by Fernando Blanco, colors by Jordi Belair, and letters by Rob Lee. 
Uh, so last issue, Tower Part 1, started uh, the seven days into the, the Arkham Tower, and then we jumped forward three weeks, and all hell had broken loose. Now we are rolling back even farther to years ago and getting the origin of, uh, of Dr. Ware, uh, and then moving forward to, uh, to current time. So it's jumping around a little bit in, in time. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm interested. I think Mariko Tamaki's doing a good job. Uh, what are your thoughts, Rocky? Well, the first thing I want to ask you, Jace, is what do you think of these covers? Uh, I, we never really commented much on the cover uh, on last issue, in issue one, uh, uh, 1047, but I really like, you know, uh, not everyone is liking this new style of covers, but it's sort of like a, a you know, a semi, sort of like the quasi-realistic take on, on Harley Quinn. I'm actually really enjoying these covers, uh, the, the main covers on this, I uh, this uh, what do you think of the covers themselves? Or do you... So I have a confession to make. I, If Lee Bermejo is doing a cover on a series, I don't even really look at the other covers. I just buy the Lee Bermejo cover because oh, really? I'm a huge fan of Lee's art. <laughs> you know, he's somebody I know personally and he's, he's, he's a friend and, and fantastic. So I wasn't really aware until I opened up the digital copy, the digital preview. And I was like, okay, photorealistic. I, I can see that. I, I don't dislike it. But I, I mean, I prefer the, the Bermejo cover because, again, it's just, just personal taste. But uh, I, I have heard a lot of people talking about this cover. A lot of people seem to love it online. Um, so that's fantastic. And then the, the third cover is a Jorge Fornes cover. And, again, there's nothing wrong with that. Jorge, his art style, he, he definitely – his art style is very much less is more. You know, we saw that in Rorschach. We saw it in his uh, work – uh, on the Batman issues he did with Tom King. A lot of people compare his stuff to Mazzucchelli. I think his art feels a little, a little more, I don't want to say softer, but a little more welcoming than, than Mazzucchelli's. It's not quite as clinical. There's, there's a little bit of a, a warmth or a sadness to Jorge's art, which I think works really well for, for this particular story. So I don't think you can go wrong with any three of these covers, but yeah. Personally, for me, I got to go with uh, the Libra Mayo just because, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's pretty simple. Like whatever whatever alternate, you know, whatever alternate cover he's doing, because that's what he's been doing for DC for a while. I mean, we all know the story of the Bat Wang and how he had a bit of a falling out with DC. Um, yeah. And I, I've talked to him about it. And I, I kind of know what his stance is. It's not really. I'm not really at liberty and, and wouldn't, you know, betray his confidence uh, in that <laughs> way. But. Um, Suffice it to say, he's, he still does covers for them. And whatever series he's doing covers on, whether it's Detective, he was doing Batman for a while. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, literally when I, there's there's two people that I buy every cover they do, or unless it's, you know, some crazy one of 50 or one of 100 that's really overpriced. But I order most of my comics from DCBS. I still go to my local comic shop and drop 50 to 100 bucks a week. It's insane. Because there's, mm. there's variants that I don't, I'm not aware of or a different cover or just things that I missed, didn't know that I wanted. Cause I, you got to order two months in advance with DCBS, but I do my regular order for DCBS. And then I, I search for Bermejo and I search for Mark Brooks to make sure there's nothing new coming out from either of those guys that I missed. Uh, Cause I get, I get their covers. They're my two favorites. So uh, yeah, but I can totally see this uh, Harley Quinn cover being right up your alley. 
Yeah, no, I, sure. I, I I like it, and you know, and, and I know it's 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 you know, I might be in the minority on that because I've 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 certainly seen a lot of people commenting that they're not fans of it, but uh, uh, I actually I think it's it, it's nice. It's something different. It's it's a combination of a little bit of the a little bit of both worlds, both the comic book traditional style of art, a little bit of crayon style there, and then a different version of Harley Quinn. I, I don't mind it once in a while. And I'm not normally a fan of photorealism, to be honest with you, in comic books, because I, I, I like I like a comic book to feel like a comic book. But every now and then, uh, you know, one of the complaints about fo- covers like this is that, uh, you know, they're, I don't know if this, you know, one of the people criticized, they made the comment that, well, you know, people are going to be expecting that kind of content when they open it up and they're going to, they're going to open up the comic. And even though it might be good art inside, it's so different than the photorealism that it, it's going to detract, it's going to upset the reader. But I, I, I don't know if that's the case, but I guess, I guess the, you know, I guess ultimately the, the customer decides, but in any event, uh, I enjoyed this issue. Now, continuing on, the the first issue of, this is a part two of Shadow of the Bat. Arkham Tower has been opened. And what the first chapter of this uh, story by Marika Tamaki, this is like 12 parts. It's coming out every week. So every week, you and I are going to be reviewing an issue of Detective Comics. We know uh, the very first issue, last issue revealed that by week 20 by what by day 27 or by day 24 or whatever it is we know that Arkham t- t- Tower is going to be come tumbling down and that Dr. Ware is going to be thrown out of the tower and that this great experiment with re- rehabilitating all the Gotham's criminally insane is going to be a spectacular failure so we know that the rest of this story starting here with part 2 is going to tell us what the hell happened how did everything go wrong? And what Marika Tomaki does here, in my view with great effect, is that we get we start to get the origins of Dr. Ware, Dr. Tobias Ware. And he's the doctor who is the, I guess, the psychiatrist who's, who's got this sort of almost miraculous cure. It's a chemical cure for a lot of these uh, criminally insane. And we get flashbacks of young Tobias's life growing up. And Essentially, we, we discover that Tobias's mother was insane. She was insane. She was abusive. She was insane. And uh, she was a knife-wielding maniac. She had a mental illness. And ultimately, she was uh, incarcerated and treated at some point as well. And this is something that Dr. Tobi- uh, Dr., Dr. Ware tells uh, an undercover Batwoman, who is there at the behest of Oracle to sort of investigate because they understandably they got some suspicions about this new Arkham Tower. Because, I mean, can you really blame the Bat family for ever doubting Arkham Tower? (laughs) Anything with the name Arkham in it, you know, it's probably going to lead to disaster. And so all this talk, because Dr. Ware bragged last issue. He he bragged about this miraculous cure about the or he said it's while it's not a cure, it's it's an effective treatment. And it does seem to and he he even showed Nero, one of the previous villains who who tried to kill the mayor, this Nero the nineteenth villain that we saw in Fear State, that he seemed to be cured. He seemed to be mentally stable. And what's going on here? Well, this is a good thing. Now, unfortunately, uh, we know something goes wrong. But so far, we're still in the early stages of this story. This is only part two of a twelve-parter, and everything seems so rosy and hunky-dory. You know, he, here we have. Uh, Batwoman undercover, you know, 
you know, using her feminine wiles to sort of, you know, woo Dr. Ware. And Dr. Ware is saying all the right things, you know, that, you know, it's not a cure, but I, I care. My mother was criminally insane. I couldn't help my mother, but I want to be able, even though I was unable to help my mother, I want to be able to help all these, all these others. And, and so he's saying all the right things. Uh, meanwhile, he's working with Dr. Meridian Chase, who was appointed by Mir Nagano to, to keep an eye and to evaluate Arkham Tower and the effectiveness they're having on all these villains and all these criminally insane people. And there's talk of expanding it. At one point, he takes, uh, 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 help me out. What's, uh, what's, uh, Batwoman's uh, name? Kane? Yeah, Kate Kane. Kate Kane's. Thank you. Uh, he takes Kate Kane, who, uh, basically on a tour of Arkham Tower and, and the, on the entire floor where the criminally insane are at, it's they're walking around freely. They're walking around freely. It doesn't look like it's. It doesn't look like a, a an asylum at all. It's just they're walking around. I mean, right away, Doctor Freeze or pardon me, Mister Freeze is walking around, and he seems very pleasant. And it just seems. Uh, it seems incredible. It, it does seem too good to be true to the readers. And of course, we know it's all going to fall apart real quick. And one of the things here that happens near the end is that we discover that in the past. A young, a young Dr. Ware, when he, young Tobias, when he was a young Tobias and he was essentially, you know, goes into a foster care following the apprehension of his mother. He, uh, young Tobias talks to his friend and his friend and, and he, he basically admits that he hates his mother. He thinks his mom's incurable and the, the, you know, and it's ridiculous to think that somebody like that could ever be cured. So right away, we know that Dr. Ware is this is all a facade that this adult doctor Ware is likely playing everybody and that he has no good intentions whatsoever. And so, so that's going to complicate things moving forward because we know that it might be possible and perhaps even likely now that this characters like Anna Volshin, who seem to be, who attacked Kate Kane, attacked Batwoman in earlier issues, that Anna Volshin, that, a lot of these patients might in fact be victims of Dr. Ware. And so maybe in their killing of Dr. Ware, because we know that happens from last issue, maybe they're actually defending themselves. Maybe they're not so much in the wrong as we think they are. Maybe Dr. Ware aggravated their mental illnesses and uh, made things worse. And so it throws a wrench into things. And I want to give a little bit of credit to Marika Tamaki that I think that makes it a little bit interesting and it surprises me a little bit. My one criticism though, and this is the question that I have is, did Marika Tamaki, the writer, did she play her hand too early? Because we still have 10 issues left. And I'm wondering if she played her hand too early because we're, we already know how this ends. And, and I'm wondering if maybe it wouldn't have been better off had she kept some of this information closer to her chest a little bit, because I'm wondering What's going to what's gonna fill in the next 10 issues? But in any event, I'm intrigued and I'm definitely in this. She's, she's got my attention and I got to give her credit because I thought, good God, not another, not another Arkham Asylum story or Arkham Tower. But overall, she's got my attention. Does she have your attention, Jace? Yeah, very much so. And I think it, I think it was great because the, the flashbacks to Dr. Ware when he was a little boy – and he's interacting with this woman, Harriet, who works for Child Protective Services. And his behavior, his his timid behavior, very nice, very polite. 
it mirrors what we see of Dr. Ware in the present time and the way he's interacting with, uh, with Kate Kane, with this under, under uh, cover Batwoman. And so you, you definitely think, okay, this is what this guy is. He's a nice guy. You know, maybe, maybe he's such a nice guy that he's giving too much of a benefit of the doubt to these criminals. Uh, maybe he's being taken advantage of, you know, he's a little bit of a, uh, a wallflower gullible, whatever that, that's sort of the impression that you get. Um, even to the point where I, th I think you said Meridian Chase. It's, so it's Chase Meridian, uh, and because he calls her, yeah, he right. calls her Chase. Yeah, and again, this is like the Nicole Kidman character. <laughs> I stand corrected. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the Val Kilmer movie, he calls her Chase when she walks in. Right. She goes, "Doctor Meridian, please," and he's like admonished, you know. So, yeah, very much this timid character. And then it's not until the very end where we see him uh, kind of sneak out of the the place where he was supposed to be, supposed to be, uh, be placed in child protective services, go back to his, uh, I think it's his apartment that he shared with his mother and orders pizza and is hanging out with a friend. And, you know, you mentioned it, how we learned that he actually hates his mother, but not only that, they're like, Oh, you, his friends, like you have all this money. Well, we see that he stole the ATM card of the, of the woman that was trying to help him, the the doctor, the psychologist from Child Protective Services. So clearly this guy has lived a life of manipulating through at a very starting at a very young age, of manipulating people through putting on one face, mm -hmm. but actually what's going on behind the scenes is another. Um so I'll credit Mariko Tamaki. And again, I mean you could be right. Maybe she played her hand too early here. Uh but didn't show that till the very end of the issue. And credit to uh to artist Yvonne Reese for doing a, a fantastic, fantastic job of great you know, job. Rocky's got, yeah. Rocky's got the, the uh, page up on the screen where you can see the hatred in this little boy's, uh, this little boy's face. But what's really great about it is, is both through the art and the body language that um, Yvonne gives us, but also through the writing of Mariko Tamaki, you, you feel bad for Tobias Ware when you first meet him and his you know mom's crazy and has been violent and whatever that changes a little bit when you learn that this kid is manipulative and it gives us clues that this, you know, grown up doctor wears hiding something and being manipulative as well, but it doesn't completely stop you from feeling sorry for him, but you feel sorry for him in a different way, right? This guy could very well be an evil guy, a bad guy, but I mean, my God, what chance did he have if his mother was insane and stabbing people and there could be drugs involved and you, and you just don't know? Obviously, you don't feel as, or at least I didn't feel as bad for him yeah. once, you know, we kind of got the heel turn at the end. I'm like, oh, you know, because before I was just kind of thinking along those lines, like I was saying, this guy's a bit of a, a wet blanket. And, you know, if, if he's into something bad or these these villains are being taken advantage of or pharmaceutical drugs are being sold on the, the streets, which we, you know, got a hint of that last issue. Um, it's because Dr. Ware's somewhat incompetent or gullible. Now it's, he's probably at the heart of it. Right. So yeah, it, it is interesting. It is a hook. Um, we're only two issues in, so it's hard to say about the story structure of her not doing it linearly. Uh, yeah. What, what's going to happen. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely hooked. And again, I'll just say, I hope what happens in the end is, whatever happens that they change the na name of the tower to like Pennyworth center or something. That's I, I still, I, I just, I can't, I can't stop. I won't stop harping on the fact that there's no way in God's name. You call this thing Arkham's tower. It's just, it defies, it defies all logic. Yeah. Um, 
and then the backup story is interesting as well. You know, we saw that boy whose parents were killed by the Joker. It so much mirrors, and I, I wonder if this is purposeful, right? It, it feels like we don't know who this little boy is yet, um, if he becomes somebody important or what have you. But it so much mirrors what is what we saw of Doctor Ware in the in the f- first issue. Now, you know, uh, a child who's abandoned and orphaned in a way, and has to go into the system, quote unquote. So, what exactly the point of the story is from Matthew Rosenberg? We still don't know. Uh, we see a, a Dr. Uh, Harley, or Harleen Quinzel, you know, early, early Harley Quinn appearance in uh, in, got, in uh, Arkham Asylum before she was turned into Harley Quinn. Um, so, yeah, I'm not, not quite sure. Uh, the boy does get, quote unquote, rescued from, from Arkham Asylum. I still, it, it, I won't say it defies logic because it's just Gotham City, but you know the fact that they took this young boy whose parents have been killed by the Joker and took him to Arkham Asylum in the first place, it was just horrible. Uh, but at least Bruce Wayne gets there pretty quickly um, and puts him in the Wayne, the Wayne Home for Boys, I think it's called, um, which doesn't necessarily mean things go well for him there. But uh, yeah, not not sure. We haven't gotten enough of the backup to really know where it's headed yet. But in uh, in Matthew Rosenberg, I trust so. I am enjoying it. I think the Fernando Blanco art is is very pitch perfect in terms of tone. So we'll see where that one leads. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. The backup feature is interesting. I, I like you. I'm not sure who this young boy grows up to be. I part of me I, I had reason to believe early on for some reason that maybe this was the young Nero who would grow up to ultimately end up taking. Oh, that's a the- good call. That, yeah, that, it could be. The, the, the mayor hostage. So I think maybe this is Nero. He would grow up to become Nero the 19th, who is that yeah. that villain in a future state, uh, fierce, fear state. But but maybe I'm wrong about that. But it actually really doesn't matter necessarily, at least not at this point in the story. Because what's fascinating is that this is a young boy that Harley Quinn in her early days as a psychiatrist di- makes the observation that this young boy can't can't differentiate between costume villains because he sort of mixes up the Joker and Batman. So this young boy seems to associate his trauma with the Joker just as much with with Batman, which is very interesting. His parents were murdered in front of him. He hid from the Joker. He's scared of both the Joker and Batman. He can't seem to tell the difference between the two, according to Harley Quinn's uh, sort of psychological takedown. Uh, she's counsel. He's counseled, of course, by Harley Quinn. He ends up in the Martha Wayne orphanage by the end of the issue, and so, you know, again, it's 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 very interesting. And as you said, you, you mentioned the sort of there, there's a you know, even though this is written by Matthew Rosenberg, there's definitely synchronicity, but to the story that Mariko Tamaki is telling uh, in, in the main storyline regarding the history of Doctor of Young. Tab- you know, Tobias Ware. And so there's, it's funny how the line between doctor and patient, you know, who's the doctor, who's the patient here, that line is always blurred. And especially it's blurred when you're talking about Gotham and when you talk about Arkham Tower or whether it's Arkham Asylum or Arkham Tower, it's that, it's that word again, Arkham, man. You always got to be, you got to be, you got to take it with a grain of salt and be very weary of it. But uh, this issue I thought was, was very well done. And, because it's not always the case that we get this type of synchronicity and sort of like narrative congruity between the backup and the main feature, but we got that here and to great effect. Yep. I agree. Uh, it's, it's nice when it happens. So, yeah. Uh, okay. On to our next Batman title, <laughs> Joker number 11 from writer James <laughs> Tynan, Giuseppe Camoncoli on pencils, Cam Smith, Lorenzo Ruggiero 
and Adriano Di Benedetto do the inks, Arif Prianto and Romulo Fajardo Jr. on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. I actually thought at one point maybe there were some different pencilers on this book uh, or different artists on this book. That's how different the art looks based on who is the inker. So it, it's not as pronounced as if there were different artists, but it's it's noticeable. Uh, but overall, I think the art works uh, for the most part. Uh, we're definitely getting back to the James Gordon narrative, um, but it's hard. To, it was hard for me to even remember because we got, um, you know, a, a flashback issue last issue with art by Francesco Francavilla. Uh, but in this one, we learn a little bit about the origins of the, uh, the Simpson family and and or Samson family rather, and how oil was found on their land and, uh, you know, the sacrifice they made with sending the one guy off to uh, uh, Arkham Asylum and blaming him for all the, the murders and uh, cannibalism and whatnot, Billy uh, Sampson, uh, which, you know, that's how, why the Sampson family is um, is out to get the Joker because Billy died in, in A-Day and that's why they've, they've captured the Joker. So that context was nice. Uh, having the interaction between Jim Gordon and Barbara Gordon was, was also nice. Um, and then Jim putting the pieces together and then going off in pursuit of his daughter to, to try to save the day basically was nice as well. It felt like a very Jim Gordon thing to do. Of course, calling his, uh, his old sidekick Harvey Bullock to, to come join him. So that felt very classic, uh, Batman, you know, the, the era of Batman that I most closely identify with in the, the late eighties through the nineties into the early two thousands. So, uh, I, I'm enjoying it. Joker does show up in this issue for the last few panels. Um, and I ha just have a feeling, just just a prediction that in the end, Gordon's going to be the one that saves Joker uh, when he was actually hired to kill the Joker. Uh, because in the end, you can't deny his nature. And the fact is that James Gordon is a hero. And uh, despite everything the Joker has done, and I feel like that's sort of the point of the story, um, despite everything the Joker has done, Gordon can't deny his own nature. And that's why we've been getting those flashback issues to really kind of ram it home. James Tynan's really selling the point. You know, we talk on Spawn Daily how <laughs> McFarland's not subtle. Tynan's not being that subtle either here when we get those flashback issues of just how much the Joker has screwed up Jim Gordon's family, you know, from shooting his daughter in the back to being a huge influence on his son, uh, James Gordon Jr., becoming a serial killer. Like, and yet I expect Gordon to save Joker because that's just who he is. So uh, I love in this series. I'm going to be sad to see it end. Uh, I think we mentioned before that wondering if it might continue um, when Tynan's done. We know when Tynan's done with the story, he's done, right? He's, he's already left Batman. He's concentrated on his creator owned and his sub stuff, which is fine. Um, I hope it does. I, and I've said this before. I hope it doesn't continue. Or if they do continue to have a Joker series, they restart with a, with a number one. Because I imagine another Joker series or bringing another writer on would actually focus on the Joker. It would be a Joker story. As opposed to this, which has more to do with how the Joker has affected somebody. And he specifically chose Jim, uh, Jim Gordon to focus on. This is not a Joker comic. This is not a Joker story. This is a Jim Gordon story. Um, and I wouldn't want to see this particular volume of Joker continue if it's actually focused on the Joker. Um, so I guess we'll see. Very curious if DC will do that or not continue with a Joker solo title. Uh, what do you think of this issue, Rocky? 
I really loved it. But let me tell you something about uh, about this issue. Uh, everything that was revealed in this issue we've already was already disclosed and we already knew about in previous issues. And what Tinian did to great effect here is that Tinian is because the previous ten issues were uh, well. That, that's a lot of issues and a lot happened. But everything that is revealed in this issue, we we already knew. We we already knew the history of the Samson family. But it's very spelled out here. It's actually going back and actually showing us the scenes. But we were showed it sort of in flashbacks, actually right back in issue one. And the reason why I'm saying all this is because I'm going to give. Tinian, a high compliment here that I might retract if this doesn't end the way I think it does, because I got a theory, okay? And uh, I want to give some credit to uh, Weird Science DC, because uh, something that uh, Jim at Weird Science DC has always said about mysteries, uh, and that is that the best mysteries are the one where the writer will give you enough clues during the narrative so you can piece together and figure it out yourself so it doesn't need to be spelled out for you. And I think Tinian has given us has given us enough clues that when Jim Gordon says in this issue that he figures he he's figured it out, he's figured out what's going on, uh, we should be able to figure it out too. Because all the clues that are given in this issue have already been given us. And where I'm going at that was this, and I just wanna I just wanna say and I say this always as a high compliment. We know that uh in my view, this is this is my theory. I think Billy Sampson now Billy Sampson took the fall for the Sampson family. The Sampson family were a, are a family of people that, uh, of, of, of basically, um, uh, why can't I remember the word? What do you call it when you eat people? Cannibalism. Thank you. They're a cannibal. They're a cannibalistic family. And they killed, they killed a bunch of young girls. And the, the Sampson family set up young Billy to take the fall for the Sampson family at, at, at around the same time that they discovered oil on their land. And basically, a, a deal was made that, you know, as long as one of their family, namely Billy, takes the fall for everyone, the, that, that built up the Samson criminal empire. My theory is, and this is, and, and I believe this works in conjunction with the narrative, and I might be 100% wrong on this, is that young Billy Samson is, is, was not killed in A-Day. I think Bill, young Billy Samson is still alive, and I think in A-Day... A-Day was blamed on the Joker, but we now know that A-Day was, uh, was probably the magistrate and the scarecrow working together. Uh, and so I think that Billy Sampson is maybe still alive. And I think the Joker, remember the Joker is captured. He was captured last issue by the Sampson family. And the head of the Sampson family wants to kill the Joker because they blame the Joker for killing uh, B Billy Sampson, because they blame, they think the Joker's responsible for A Day. Now, yeah, but Billy Sampson's not young. We know, or you're saying the younger, you're saying Billy Sampson Jr., the one that got killed in the series, or the well, one that died yeah, at Ar in Arkham. The the one I don't believe the one that died in, on A Day. I don't believe he's really dead. I think okay, that so young. That's, yeah, that, that's the older one who's the same age as the guy that confronts the joke because they were brothers. Right. I think. I think that Billy Sampson has always harbored resentment and he wants to get revenge on his family because he took the fall for them and they got to they got to grow into a powerful uh power, powerful criminal empire and i and i think the joker remember that the joker was bunkmates was a roommate with young billy sampson back in the day that was an issue oh, gotcha. 7 or 8 right and i think yep, the yep. joker has manipulated billy sampson and built up his resentment over years and this is all part of a massive ploy by joker to, to create more chaos and then when you so, 
so Billy Sampson is may still have alive. somehow is still alive. Yeah, he, I, I think still alive. Or or uh, I'll throw an alternate theory in here. Yeah. <laughs> he could he could have set it up that upon his death, these events would start unfolding to get revenge on his family from beyond the grave. Well, perhaps, but except he was in Arkham Asylum, and he maybe could have done that with the help of the Joker, who was his roommate at Arkham at one time. Right. So yes. Yeah. So all, now bear in mind. Then we throw in this other stuff. The Joker then to put people off the scent when he gets out, he, I think maybe it's the Joker, not just maybe working. It's the court of our court of owls that supposedly hired Cressida, Cressida character to hire Jim Gordon to take out the Joker. I, I, I submit that maybe it's even the Joker that has hired Cressida and it's all misdirection to hire the, to hire George, Gordon to come after him. That way the Joker can keep tabs on the international, uh, police community at, and the FBI and the CIA and, and, the, and, the, and the enforcement agencies keeping an eye on the Joker. Meanwhile, the Joker is possible. He, the Joker knows that the, the secret hideouts of the supervillains, that all, that's all being basically revealed. The Joker is basically taking down everything. He's creating chaos. Meanwhile, the Joker knows it, it, it brings out vengeance. Uh, the daughter of Bane, who wants to get revenge because she thinks that she blames Joker for the death of Bane, even though it's not Joker who's responsible. It's in, it's in fact somebody else, but all this forces vengeance to act prematurely. And it brings her out in the open, which is an advantage to the Joker. All this in my view is working toward the Joker's advantage because now everyone is heading toward the Samson ranch in, in, in Texas there. And the Joker is there. Gordon's going to show up. Vengeance is likely to show up. Uh, and, Everything's going to come to the head, and in, I predict well, that Billy forget. Billy Samson's going to show up and take yeah. over control of the of the family. He, that's going to be the big reveal in issue twelve. I predict Billy Samson's going to show up, and the coup de grace is going to be when the Joker kills Billy Samson to finally betray him and wipe out the Samson family once and for all. That's my prediction. I might be a hundred percent wrong, but I see that's. I think the clues have led me to there. So we'll see if I'm wrong next issue. But I love the fact that Tinian has put together a, a story that is even making me think about this. And this is why I say that if I'm spectacularly wrong, I'm not going to lie. I'll be a little disappointed, <laughs> but uh, I had a lot of fun with this and I'm, I've had a lot of fun reading this series and reviewing it with you because I think that uh, I hope I'm not wrong. I hope there's not some ridiculous Duke Machina ending or something, but I, I, I really think that there's enough clues in here to make for a very interesting ending. Yeah, don't forget that that direction as well. Sorry, you, you got to restate that. You just conked out there on the on the volume. Uh, yeah, I was saying, don't forget that Barbara Gordon and Cassandra Kane are headed to the uh, ranch as well. That's right. So, yeah, yeah, it's gonna be gonna be chaos there for sure. Um, I don't have much to say about the backup story. It's written by Sam Johns and James Tynan, art by Bell and Ortega, colors by Alejandro Sanchez, letters by Becca Carey. Uh, it's just continuing the punchline story. Her trial's about to start. Nobody's believing this witness, Kelly, uh, ex you know, on the, on the prosecution side of things, except for the people that brought her in. The, basically, the females believe her. The guys are saying that she's making stuff up. It's super annoying. And for whatever reason, maybe Bendis and Tynan had a conversation the Royal Fresh Gang is becoming more a part of the story. Um, they've always been a joke to me. I don't know why all of a sudden 
<laughs> the powers that be at DC are trying to turn them into something. Um, in this issue, they feel like they're, it reminds me of the Hellfire Club over on the Marvel side of things. Like they're trying to make them yeah. important behind the scenes. doesn't really work. To me, the Royal Flush Gang will always be a joke. Uh, yeah. But whatever, I'm, I'm so ready for this to be over. But it's, it's, it's obviously clear that this punchline story is going to continue throughout the entire run. Because we probably have another, I think, four issues. I think the final issue of, of Joker's either number 14 or 15. Uh, yeah. So I guess we'll see. Anything to add about the uh, the backup? Yeah, I, you know, this, this isn't for me. Uh, this is where I exercise my, my I'm, I'm, I'm at the edges of trying to say things as diplomatically as possible. I think this has just been a catastrophic failure of, uh, in, in, in trying to create some interest in punchline. This has just been a disastrous uh, punchline story. It hasn't engendered any interest that I have in the character whatsoever. This is a massive disappointment for me. Uh, punchline is a thoroughly uninteresting character like this. And I thought punchline was the most, the most had the most potential as a character, but if punchline is going to become interesting as a character, it's going to be in spite of this story, which as you said, now we're supposed to care about the, the red, the Royal flush gang. And if you want us to care about the Royal flush gang, you should have made, maybe not let Bendis use them in the, in, in the last week's issue of justice league, which I mean, if you're going to have Leviathan, who Mark Shaw, who Leviathan? Uh, yeah, I, I forget him already too. uh, approach the Royal flush gang. The portrayal of the Royal Flush Gang in the pages of Justice League is completely, totally, 100% inconsistent with their portrayal here. There isn't even a token attempt to try to make this, to try to have any kind of continuity between the two. And not that not not that people who are reading Justice League will be reading this backup feature, but it nonetheless it's 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 very frustrating to me. I will say this though, as a as a compliment that because uh, I want to say something positive. I actually do think that this is a better interpretation of the Royal Flush Gang than what in the pages of Justice League. I would rather see the Royal Flush Gang as a as a family of thieves that are very good and covert at what they do. And they stay sort of in the shadows and they have a reputation and the way they refer to each other as as, as decks of cards and, and they have sort of their own code and family family way of doing things. I think that's a very brilliant approach to the royal flush gang and that yeah, actually like intrigues me yeah. yeah it's like the hellfire club like i said yeah sure uh i'm not i'm not as familiar with the Her hellfire club i'm not into as much marvel as so you you know more about that so than i would yeah so yeah so basically it's it's this group that's behind the scenes clandestine very powerful heads of industries and whatnot and everybody's at like a chess piece you know so you have the black king the you know the white queen the... it's sort of like checkmate though too for DC. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, similar. You have rooks, you have bishops, you have pawns, that yeah, that sort of thing. But Hellfire Club was back. I mean, Claremont created them way back in the the one tens of X-Men, I think. So yeah. yeah. Uh okay, let's move on to the last book. I don't have a lot to say about this one. Uh we talked extensively about issue number one of Batgirls. Uh Becky Clunan and Michael Conrad do the story, Jorge Corona on art. Sarah Stern on colors, Becca Carey on letters. Uh, I basically said that this wasn't for me. It definitely feels like it's for younger readers, specifically female readers. Uh, that hasn't changed in the second issue here. Um, and I also talked about how I don't really feel like Jorge Corona's art really suits superhero comics. Like there, there's splatter. There's like ink splatter over every page. 
um, to add texture. And I just, I don't think it works or is necessary in a superhero comic. Um, and when you look at the colors, it's sort of bright and cartoonish uh, in terms of the color choices, uh, which again, I think it's to engage a, a younger reader. So maybe this is working for a younger reader. Uh, it's not really working for me. I don't even particularly care for the characterizations of Stephanie Brown or Cassandra Kane or Barbara Gordon that we have here. You know, Stephanie Brown, I've never been that big of a fan of. She feels like an extremely redundant character. Uh, but I am a, have been a fan of the the Batgirls in terms of the Cassandra Kane and the Barbara Gordon versions. But these characterizations of those two characters don't feel authentic to me when compared to past characterizations. Barbara Gordon is a big part of the uh, the Tom Taylor Nightwing story that's going on right now, and this characterization of here her of her here feels very different than what we get in the Nightwing story. But yet we have her talking to Nightwing on the phone. So it's not like this is a different version. <laughs> this is this is supposed to be the same version. So yeah, this just isn't for me. It's not interesting in terms of the, the story. It, it feels juvenile and, and that's fine. You know, it's not for me, I whatever. Um, but one thing I do want to mention now that we're on the last book, uh, if you scroll all the way down, down rocky we see an ad house ad in the back for the shadows of the bat story and we talked extensively about part two so it's specifically 1050 january landmark oversized issue uh an explosive crescendo here you know here's what's going on and we have a four-part connecting cover from jorge molina and there's a jason fabic cover and a libra mayo cover and jorge fornis cover and what have you uh and a great um sort of montage piece there in the advertising my, yeah. my question is, why does Batman have fuzz on his chin? I mean, that does not look like Bruce Wayne at all. And he's got like a little, it's not even stubble. Like, yeah. can you see it there? Yeah, the no, I, I, I can. I, I know what you're talking about, but, and that's like, it's that, is, it's that like, photorealistic that? style is what it is. It's that photorealistic style. And so, so Bruce Wayne is now like, 12 and can't grow a beard and it's got fuzz on his chin. Like I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, there's a lot to like about this cover, but I didn't understand that at all. That bothered me. So well, maybe anyway. it's more in keeping with the movie coming out, right? Maybe they want to create some artistic blurring of the lines, uh, some middle ground artistic middle of the ground approach to the portrayal of Batman to look but at some version between the comic version and Robert Pattinson's v version in the movie. I mean, who knows? Maybe, <laughs> maybe, I didn't care for it uh, as much as there's a lot to like about that cover. I just, that bugged me. I'm like, why, why? Yeah. Anyway, what were your thoughts about Batgirl? Batgirls, well, I should say. Well, like I said, it's, it's not for me. Uh, it, this isn't my, my bad girl either. I, I like the, I like the more, the original version of, of Cassandra Kane. Um, however, I'm more forgiving of the art. It does have a it does have a very unique and kinetic style of art. I, I I do think it sort of pops off the page. So I'd be lying if I said it doesn't get my attention. And so I want to and and I mean that in a very I mean that in a flattering way. And uh, because the more I read it, the more I I do think it's 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 interesting. Where where the the story itself, it's there's too many divergent tones and moods in this. It, it's this seems to be very flippant. This seems to be a very almost, almost like a silly, 
silly, fun, over-the-top version of Barbara Gordon that doesn't fit with my version of Oracle, especially not the one that's over in the pages of uh, Nightwing. Not that it necessarily has to if this is the DC Omniverse, even though it's technically in the same continuity. Uh, the, the, you know, both Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Kane seem to be sort of happy-go-lucky girls that are living together in a dilapidated house in the middle of Gotham. They're still kind of wanted by the police for events that happened in, in for for the events that led to the destruction of uh, the Oracle's tower there originally in, during Fear State. And yet, at the same time, they do battle uh, with these other. Uh, characters called Tarsus, Valentine, and Assisi. These new characters, Tarsus is the ringleader. Uh, and these are brutal characters. These are cold-hearted killers, Valentine uh, uh, and Assisi, and who's got, was was fired from Star Labs. And this Valentine, that her parents were slain, a similar origin to, to Bruce Wayne. Tarsus is the ringleader of this group. And and they all, they, they're all... Uh, the seer is manipulating Tarsus, Valentine, and Assisi. These three new supervillains. The the seer is man, this the, at, the seer who was the anti Oracle during Fear State is now manipulating these three supervillains into believing that the magistrate or and that Simon Saint is still alive. Now we know that Simon Saint is actually dead, but the seer is is through uh, virtual manipulation. Making Tarsus, Valentine, and Assisi believe that Simon Saint is still alive, and they're sort of brainwashed uh, in believing in in the in the uh, doctrine in the in the teachings of the magistrate. And so, part of the I guess one could criticize is that well, this is this is still a remnant of fear state that people want to move on, but at the same time, there is the, there is the inkling of a story here. And there's some sign that maybe, I believe it's Tarsus, the ringleader, might have some, might ultimately betray Seer. And so there's, I can see the makings of a story here of ultimate betrayal uh, and that the Seer probably is, is going to manipulate her underlings a little bit too much and eventually they will betray her. But it, it's, it's hard for me to reconcile Seer, who was this cold-blooded... I mean, Fear State in Seer... In, during Fear State, Seer was portrayed as this really cold-blooded, horrible person. Now we discover that she, she's almost like a little teenage girl, almost preteen, who's a super genius. And, and then she's hiring these cold-blooded kind of assassins that were supposed... So on the one hand, we want to be flippant and fun with Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Cannon. And then the other hand, we're, we're sort of the mood changes and it gets really, really dark and brooding. And it's, it's not quite of a, it's like this story can't make up its mind what it wants to be. If you want to be fun and jovial, and even, even with Barbara Gordon telling them to, to drive their scooter and Barbara Gordon still doesn't know that, 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 that the bad girls are, have this new car that they stole off a bunch of bums that they beat up. <laughs> and they're, they're not driving the scooters that Barbara Gordon is expecting them to drive around in these little bat scooters that they got last issue. So we kind of got this almost like this fun little kind of crazy attempt at humor and defiance of authority of Barbara Gordon on the one hand. And then we got this very kind of serious subject matter of the magistrate and the seer on the other. But yet then seer is almost this appears to be drawn like a young teenager herself. So I'm I'm not really sure. It's it's like this. It seems a little bit schizophrenic to me. This story hasn't really found its its footing. It's trying to I think trying to cater to too many too much 
too wide a range an audience as opposed to just picking a story and a tone and a mood and sticking with it. And then to top that off, when you throw this art into it, as much as I like the art, the story itself kind of doesn't always fit the, the style of the art. Uh, you know, it does when there's humor and there's interaction between Stephanie and Cassandra, but then when it gets more serious with the darker characters, there's a little bit of a disconnect there. So I, I do want to give a compliment to Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan. I think this issue is better than the first one. And even though it's, I don't, I still don't think it's for me. I'm, I'm still, you know, this, this is, I think it does have something to say. The jury is still out. Well, I'll, I'll give it the first story arc to see what happens. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's not for me, but I'm glad this comic exists. Um, and I, I'm probably why they chose the artist they chose because it is, like I said, a fun frenetic style, like, like you mentioned and the colors again, very bright and juvenile. So this hopefully is get, you know, grabbing the attention of younger readers and uh, it's definitely accessible for someone like us who knows these characters intimately. They, we know that this isn't the real accurate characterizations that we've had of these characters in the past. So it makes it, makes it a little tough, makes it a little challenging at times, but again, ho hope it does what it, it, what it's probably intended to do, which is bring in younger readers. Uh, there's a few other books that are coming out this week that we aren't going to talk about in detail. Harley Quinn, the animated series, the Eat, Bang, Kill Tour is up to issue number five. We've got Batman and Scooby-Doo Mysteries number 10. Uh, and I think that's it, right? We talked about everything else. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Uh, there's also some collections. We've got Batman No Man's Land Omnibus Volume 1 hardcover. Basically, that's a story of when an earthquake hit Gotham and uh, the United States just said, forget it, <laughs> we're just abandoning you. <laughs> uh, anarchy reigned in Gotham. It's actually a pretty good story. Um, it is. It's notable, notable for a couple of things in terms of um, speculators. The first appearance of Harley Quinn in the regular DC continuity happens during that uh, story. Also, Cassandra Cain's first appearance is in that story as Batgirl. Uh, and then, yeah. yeah, we also have Batman versus Ra's al Ghul hardcover. Uh, that's out from DC Comics this week as well. So plenty of DC books out there this week, especially for the Batman lover in your family. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. We hope you're enjoying our uh, Spawn Daily episodes that we've been doing. Uh, I've got a lot of interviews coming up. So uh, a creator-owned uh, title called La Mano del Destino, which is currently running a Zoop campaign, dropped yesterday. Um, yeah, I've got another creator owned interview coming up later this week on Friday. I'm talking with a legendary creator. I've teased that here before. Uh, can't wait to talk to him talking to Rob Sheridan of uh, high, high level, the vertigo title next week and, and tons more. So many people have been reaching out lately now that the holidays are over new year starting a lot of new projects. So just trying to juggle everything, make time for everybody to come on the show. Um, so yeah, we really appreciate the support. Download numbers are crazy, uh, which is fantastic. You guys really seem to be enjoying the Spawn daily. So we'll continue that in this year of the Spawn 2022, celebrating the 30th anniversary of Image and Spawn itself. Uh, so yeah, really good stuff. What about you, Rocky? Got anything upcoming you want to tease? Uh, well, I do my Spawn daily with you. That takes up an awful lot of my time. Uh, nothing specific. Uh, there's, there's always something that... 
there's always something that I might do. I might do a deep dive into, uh, uh, I, I'm still planning to do a deep dive into Infinite uh, Frontier and to Justice League Incarnate, having a little fun, maybe a recap of Final Crisis to get people prepared for the uh, summer crisis, the summer event of crisis, that the, the next DC crisis. And I, I do think it might be worth doing a, a deeper dive into Super uh, Justice League and the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, as crazy as I am, I, I do think that there's uh, there's potential there for the great darkness, and I have some theories as to my, what might be going on there. And here's hoping my, that my theory on the Joker is correct. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, and and yeah, you and I have a, a, a team up interview coming up for a DC creator that I know you're super excited about. I did. So. Well, I didn't want to. I didn't want to ruin that. I, I don't know. I'll, I, yeah. I guess you're you're still teasing that. You're not mentioning. Yeah, we'll still we'll tease it. We won't okay. tell everybody what it is yet. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, looking looking forward to that as well. Right on. All right. So yeah, don't forget, everybody, be sure you subscribe to Rocky's channel on YouTube so you don't miss any of this content. Just go to YouTube, do a search for Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point. Uh, ring that notification bell, like this video, subscribe to the channel. All of that really helps us out. Conversely, if you check us out on YouTube, be sure you also check out the audio-only content on the Comic Source podcast channel. So go to your favorite podcasting application on your smart device or your favorite podcasting platform, whether that's Stitcher, Google, um, Spotify, iTunes, whatever it is. Just do a search for the Comic Source. You'll find us there and subscribe as well. So we really appreciate the support as always, and we will talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.